listening to the Funnel Radio Channel programs for November 1st, 2018. These programs are offered to you in sequence. Patrick Morrissey starts off with predictable revenue and discusses how technology innovation leads to category ownership. Roan Morgan follows with Revenue Rebels with her guest Daryl Prale, and he covers the four steps to accelerate growth. Sales Enablement Radio continues with host Ralph Grimps covering how to crush your quota using situational awareness. Matt Hines with Sales Pipeline Radio hits us with objection handling from the master, Jeb Blunt. Asher SalesSense follows with John Asher and his guests discussing aligning sales and marketing strategy and execution to optimize growth. And we end the day with Rooted in Revenue host Susan Finch interviewing author Amy Franco who discusses defining and becoming the modern seller. You can listen to any of these programs individually live each Thursday from 9 a.m. till 1 o'clock Pacific Standard Time on the Funnel Radio Channel or as podcasts on their individual radio program sites. Enjoy. Welcome back. Time for another episode with Patrick Morrissey. Hey, Patrick. Good morning. How you doing, Paul? Oh, frantic here, but uh, we're glad we could get you on. A few technical snitches, but we're up and running this morning on the Funnel Radio Network. Fantastic. Well, the good news is we've got a fantastic guest who's going to drop knowledge like Steph Curry drops threes. So I love got a that. Good show. <laughs> so who'd you bring with you? I have the fabulous and talented Mr. John Kreisa, who's currently the VP of Marketing at Hortonworks. And we're going to talk a little bit about how do you scale for growth. Hey, good morning. Good morning. Welcome to the program. As mentioned, uh, I want to talk about you know scaling for growth. I want, and want you to drop a little knowledge and, and put a little international perspective on things. But before we get too deep in the weeds, why don't you uh, take a minute to introduce yourself briefly to the audience and talk about you and, and your background and where you work now. Sure, absolutely. So good to chat with you and good to chat with everybody. I'm John Kreisa. I'm currently the VP of Marketing at Hortonworks, a global data management software company based in Silicon Valley. I've been working at enterprise software companies for over 20 years doing enterprise marketing. And as you alluded to a little bit, worked in international experience everywhere from Australia to Europe and in the U.S. with sales teams, both big and small, at very small early stage startups through to large-scale global enterprises. Fantastic. Well, I want to get a little bit, um, let you share some of your experiences, uh, lessons learned the hard way, and and maybe some pointers on, on what to do specifically in that intersection between sales and marketing. There's a lot of stereotypes. There's a lot of conjecture. But the reality is you talked about with you know 20 years in enterprise. So let's start at the beginning and give me some context, particularly for early stage companies. Maybe you're pre-revenue. Maybe you have a Series A. But you're a small company with a big aspiration and potentially trying to carve out some new space. When you advise companies or when you evaluate the market and when you look out, what do you see as the critical ingredients that really make up the foundational elements of sales and marketing success? that are allowing a company to get off the launch pad. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you're working in a very early stage or, as you said, Series A type company, it's, for sales and marketing, it's extremely important to be partnered closely, as you might expect. It shouldn't be the normal kind of cats and dogs relationship that you see with marketing and sales. You're effectively fighting in a foxhole together. You need to be out there trying to make sure you find the market. You're trying to define a market. So it's really a case of an entrepreneurial spirit, right? You've got a new technology. You're trying to evangelize that heavily. You're trying to understand what the workloads are, that it's useful. Really try to 
find and discover what the repeatable process is, something that you can start to grow around. I mean, if you look at even things like the early days of Hadoop, it was compared to, to EDW software, even though it wasn't functionally the same, it was quite different. But what you're doing is you're, you're looking to compare and contrast to existing technology, differentiate and really carve out that market. And from a sales and marketing standpoint, you're doing it together, and it's, it's a fast feedback loop, right, between the two organizations, you know, as small or as large as they are at that time, in order to make sure you're making adjustments real-time to the story, to the message, so that you can find that place where it really clicks and starts to scale. So if we're talking about scale, and you also talked about, you know, being in the foxhole, you self-describe as a, as a marketing pro, uh, which I know you to be. When you think about who you want and what's the profile of that person who's in the foxhole in the early days with you, what's the sketch in terms of, you know, salesperson or sales leader in a small growth company that has the ability to actually execute and help you survive the night, much less take the hill or win the war? <laughs> yeah, so good question. In terms of profile, look, it is extremely hard early days to understand who the people are that you need to talk to, what are the profiles. You get a lot of doors slammed in the face. You have a lot of conversations that seem like they go nowhere. So what you need in terms of a sales leader, and what my experience says is it's got to be somebody who somewhat doesn't take no for an answer and can continue to operate in the face of, hey, we're not sure here, a lot of uncertainty. You have to be very, very comfortable with, we really just don't know where this thing is going to click. And so somebody that will go and continue to knock on doors with you, pick up the phone and go out and really meet prospects, kind of a true hunter profile, if you will, in a sales leader to say, all right, we've got to just go and knock down the doors and figure out what is the profile that we need and feed that back to marketing so that we can put that into the messages, adjust the tools and adjust the targeting for where we're going out to try to bring in the right kind of prospects. So it has to be somebody with that entrepreneurial spirit and the kind of don't say no and uh, attitude. And when you think about that fast feedback loop you mentioned for a second ago, there's a bias, I think, sometimes that salespeople just exist to do nothing but sell as opposed to conceptualize, really understand the people and problems and the market issues. Their idea of feedback to marketing is get me a better lead. Juxtapose that over simple sketch of, of a salesperson with what kind of feedback are you really looking for? And the related question is, you know, how many of those early sales calls do you get out on or are you part of to really you know, capture that real-time feedback? Yeah, a couple of good questions there, Pat. So start with the second. Early days as a marketing leader, you absolutely have to be out there on the sales calls. Not every single one. You know, there's, there's the day job to do too, but this is an essential component of helping to tune tune the message and tune the sailing process. So you have to get out to a substantial number of the early sales calls. You have to be willing to make those and, and hear the feedback directly. That said, what you need from a sales leader is somebody will come back, sit with you and say, okay, look, here's what I said. Here's what they said to that. Here's how they reacted. And even say, I think if we you know, spin it or pitch it this way, we are actually getting to the heart of the issue and understanding what the value proposition is around the you know, software that we're trying to sell or the product that we're trying to sell. So we want somebody in early days in particular who is going to give that kind of very detailed feedback and can also just help partner with you to, you know, to, to land that message and improve that message and, and selling process out into the market. So it, it's key to get details on what was said, what was reacted to, and even ideas on other ways to go out and pitch it because it needs to be a team effort here. Makes sense. So you're part of the team. You're accountable like everybody else is. Um, if I go to the other side of the foxhole as a sales leader and both of you are accountable to the CEO, what should a sales leader expect from his partner in marketing and what's the measuring stick? In terms of the expectation, right? I mean, you want to be 
aligned to the CEO. You want to make sure that you are working closely together. And that's not to say that everything's always going to be working, because that would be you know the ideal state or nirvana state. But we know there's always going to be issues coming up. What you need is somebody you can work through the hard issues with and then be able to, to work that out and not necessarily have to go to the CEO and expect the CEO to work it out. You're not children here. You need to, you need to be uh, adults about it and, and have somebody that you're working with. So you definitely want to find somebody that you can, can partner with from a sales and marketing standpoint in the hard cases as well as the easy cases, right? The easy, when things are taking off and ramping, it's all going good. That is certainly easy, and, and a lot of people can get along in that environment. When it's hard is when you're still trying to struggle to find and land that message. And that, you know, that happens in a lot of companies, and it's okay. You just have to be working with somebody and know that you're partnered with somebody who's going to continue to give the feedback and be constructive and positive, right? It's easy to get, as you said, just give me more leads. That's not constructive and positive. What you need is somebody who, who understands the role of marketing, what marketing can do, and how marketing can help sales really be successful. I mean, marketing exists, as you and I know, we've heard this many times, marketing exists to help sales sell. And we need to be there to do it. But marketing can only do that in partnership, not just, hey, give me more leads. You're not giving me good enough leads. If that's the case, or you think that's the case, let's sit down and talk about it. And let's figure out where the issue might or might not be. 100%. And oftentimes those conversations happen, you know, several times a day or, or dozens of times a week. The question then for you is, okay, let's say you're out with your, your partner in sales, you're starting to get some traction, you sign the early customers, and you're, you're starting to get a little bit of, of runway, which means you got to hire some help. When you mm-hmm. think about, you know, the first couple hires on the team and who's going to join the team that are, that are foundational to help you scale from a what does sales need, what does marketing need, what do those roles look like, and I guess maybe what are the skills and the traits you're looking to hire for in, a, in an early stage company? Yep. So from a marketing standpoint, you know, when you start to grow the team early days, of course, you want to have somebody who's focused on demand. You want everybody to somewhat be thinking about the demand process, even if they're not related to what they're doing, everybody is, is trying to work on that. So I'm looking for people who are experimenters, a bit of a jack of all trades, right? I want somebody who's doing digital demand, but I need them to understand the other parts of marketing, a little bit of don't take no for an answer type of, of personality. Many of the early people that I've hired are like that. They're people who just won't quit. They push, they push vendors, they push sales, they push their leaders, you know, they push me. They are people who are really have what I call a bias for action, right? They just go, go, go. And I'd much rather have somebody who is acting, who is pushing and trying to move the organization forward and trying to to move the overall process forward than sitting back and waiting. So you really have to have people that are entrepreneurial spirit early days. A hundred percent. And with a strong bias for action, what have you observed as you think about putting on the first few salespeople? Is it the same sort of skill set bias for action and just you know run through the wall? Or are there other things that you've observed that from a skills or from a trades perspective that you think a, a small company needs to over-index on? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think a lot of the people in the early companies that I've seen have success are the kind of run through the wall type of, of folks, like who just will keep going to land the sale. Because early on, you're still not 100% sure you know, what the most scalable selling process or customers or any of that that is. So you just need to keep going. And as you continue to grow, then you start to tune that, particularly if you start to get a couple of customers, you can start to think of breaking it up into more hunters and farmers type organization. But early days, your first few people, first hires in international and things like that, where they don't necessarily have a lot of support, 
they need to be people who will you know, run through walls and really don't take no for an answer as well. Very entrepreneurial. When do you start to see the signals or what are the what are the things that you're looking for that start to say this thing's really going to take off and we're going to hit escape velocity when you look at the the sorts of behaviors you see from from salespeople or for customers? What's the pattern matching you know that the listeners should be looking for to, to really kind of decode? Are we just going to be blocking and tackling forever or this thing is really starting to hit an accelerated ramp? That's a good question. I think we're looking at the data. So, I mean, you want to look at, say, the sales cycles, what's happening, what are the use cases. If you can, set up to capture use case information early on in your you know, Salesforce or whatever system you're using. You can actually get an idea of, you know, what are the things that are starting to catch. So you've got to catch that. You've got to have your ear to the ground to understand we're starting to see this particular pattern over and over again or this particular use case or this particular buyer is responding to you know, a certain set of messages. So it's by collecting data and understanding what you're starting to see that you'll start to develop patterns. Certain companies I've been at, you know, we, we started to see signals in specific industries, for example, whether it was in government or in financial services, you start to see patterns. So that, that pattern can develop cross-functional or cross-industry, or it might actually specifically be an industry. And it might be responses on your website. It can be responses to what your sales teams are saying, where you're having certain successes certain events, all the different signals are things that you need to read and understand and align and and correlate that with the selling process and the selling success. And then that's going to start to tell you, hey, we're we're really onto something here. Maybe we need to put some more, you know, marketing fuel on that fire to try to stoke it to see if that also stokes more sales. Like you need to kind of experiment in those areas using the data that you're getting back from the market and from your sales team. Is there a good example when you start to think of that in terms of the, the signals and you start to see some of that repeatability of either some, some tests you can run or some, some examples you'd use to really you know, flesh out if, if you've got true signal or not? Yeah, I mean, let's just say you think, you think that you've got some signal in a specific industry. Then I would tune and start to fuel more, more of the outbound selling activity into that, whether it's going to industry-specific trade shows, targeting those specific user profiles within industry and look at the response rates, click-through rates, and all that, plus do lead qualifications so that we're bringing that through to the sales teams, and then the sales teams can give us the direct feedback on, hey, okay, I had a really good conversation with this role, and that, you know, that's led to, led to me creating some opportunities, et cetera. So you start to listen to those, and it might be by industry where you're going to add fuel to it, you're going to add some resource to it, maybe even focus the salesperson on that specific industry and allow them to try to operate in there with some, you know, with some marketing backing to see if it starts to scale out for you. Totally. And, and the industry thing, I, I got a whole bunch of questions to you on that, but I, I think maybe the first one is, what's the tell or is there a natural break or a natural point in the evolution of a company where it's the right time to go industry? Because certainly there's a bias that, hey, you can't really do enterprise selling at scale unless take an industry-specific approach. But I see a lot of people do that too quickly and they don't get the right kind of results they expect. I think it really depends on the technology, if I'm honest, Pat, because that would be what I'd advise people because I've seen it both ways. I've seen it where we've gone industry very early on. The startups at 100 people. And that was partially because of the early signals indicated that it was going to be more of an industry play based on the technology that was there. So I don't think there's a good hard and fast rule of thumb. You really, really have to read the data and understand what's going on. Because certainly if you have a very general technology and you're getting signals across a bunch of different industries, well, then you want to hold and just grow without doing too much into an industry because it is resource intensive by putting a selling resource specifically focused on industry, putting your marketing resources specifically focused on industry, you are narrowing down 
more intensive to create those kinds of resources. So it is something where you really have to gauge based on the signals that you're getting and based on an understanding of the technology that you're marketing and selling when you need to make that cut over. So I don't see a hard and fast rule. I've really seen it at scale and I've seen it done on a fairly small scale. Makes a ton of sense. Let's take a quick time out to pay the bills, John, and I want to pick this conversation up here in just a second. All right. You're only successful as your customers, and that demands the need for an exceptional sales execution, revenue retention, and customer success. The challenge for most sales leaders and their teams, however, is that their sales process just doesn't match how their customers buy. Sustained growth isn't possible because the revenue team isn't aligned with customers and prospects. With Altify's sales transformation solutions, companies can deliver predictable revenue growth. Yes, we said predictable revenue growth. They can also acquire and retain customers, and they can collaborate across the revenue team to qualify and win new business while delivering value that unlocks cross-sell and upsell opportunities. Built natively on the Salesforce platform, Altify helps salespeople, managers, and executives achieve sustained revenue growth. They help accelerate sales performance for Autodesk, Comcast, GE, Honeywell, Salesforce, Tableau, and United Healthcare. They can do the same for you. Visit Altify.com, just like it sounds, A-L-T-I-F-Y, Altify.com. And now back to Patrick and his guest. Thanks, Paul. And welcome back. We're with John Kreisa, and he is the VP of Marketing at Hortonworks. And we're really talking about that sales and marketing intersection about what's required to get to scale and get to growth that all of us are looking for. And when we left off with John, we got into a little bit of a, a conversation about industry marketing. And I wanted to revisit that for a second, specifically because you mentioned there was no hard and fast rule, John, between when it's the right time to go industry specific. If you think about one of the dialogues in sales that seems to be as old as time is public sector is totally different from selling in commercial, whether I'm selling manufacturing, I'm selling in high tech, I'm selling in telecommunications, just that animal is, is wholly different. And I've had other sales leaders say to me, you know what, other than the fact that customers are called constituents, it's almost a 100% the same. Where do you fall on that spectrum? And what's your point of view? Yeah, thanks. And I've worked for companies that sold heavily into Government is one of their primary industries and even workforce, some beltway bandits, as they call us. I'm more biased towards it's a different market. You typically are selling through specific government resellers to the government fiscal year. So there are a lot of things that make it different. They have their own trade shows. You, you know, you're not typically going to run into government users at some of the broad, just industry-wide conferences. They might be there, not in mass. So it, it is a different market. They tend to think differently. Now, a lot of the problems you might solve are the same, right, if you're talking about data problems or scaling or, you know, you know, analytics and things like that. Many of those problems are the same. And so you can use some of the same tuned messaging, but it would be tuned into that, into that market. So I lean towards it's different. I would always look for places I can get economies of scale across all of my marketing efforts. But typically I have seen and have set up separate government marketing sales and marketing functions. Appreciate your, your point of view there. And I want to actually uh, build on that question. And you know, you're a Silicon Valley guy. That's home base for you. But you have done tours of duty in Australia. You've worked in Paris. You've lived outside of London, oftentimes for technology companies. And I think particularly there's, a, there's this notion that everything that important happens in Silicon Valley and then the rest of the world will figure it out at some point. 
What's your point of view in, in real life and kind of juxtapose for me how it works in the Valley when you think about, you know, sales and go to market versus what you might have seen in, in some of the other international areas that you've lived in? Yeah, good questions. There's definitely lots of technology, great technologies created in Silicon Valley, some that's not. And the typical startup attitude is win the U.S. and then move overseas. And as you said, that kind of uh, the rest of the world will figure it out in time. I've definitely seen it both ways in terms of technology adoption in that other areas or other regions of the world are able to leap directly to newer innovative technologies, right? They're, they're early adopters. Now, that, that varies very heavily by region, right? I'd say that there are certain pockets of Europe that tend to be you know, a little bit more conservative on technology adoption, but I've seen parts of Asia which tend to lean into technology adoption, whether you're talking about ASEAN region in Singapore or Australia, like they, they might be a little bit more entrepreneurial and, and move to new technologies more quickly. So the adoption rates vary broadly depending on where you are, and it really also depends on the technology. If you're talking about kind of core data technologies, then the adoption might be a bit slower. If you're talking about analytics technologies, the adoption might be a bit faster. Say the you know, sellers that I've worked with in all those places, there's great sellers in, in every geography, you know, that kind of core ability to go out there and, and knock down doors and, and sell and close deals. I've seen and worked with great sellers globally, you know, regardless of the size of the company or the kind of technology that we're working with. It really is a matter of the market differences, and it's really a matter of the, uh, you know, the technology that you're working with at the time. So it, it's something that really for each company, they're going to have to work their way through how quickly they decide if they start in Silicon Valley, if they're going to make that leap, you know, often what we see is that, and I think this is a very common practice, the first move is to, you know, is to someplace like London because of, uh, you know, common language and, and things like that. And, and it makes it a little bit easier. Kind of thing that took me to Australia was, again, common language and common use cases for the technology that I was working with at the time. Also some great sellers down there and great market opportunities. So you really have to have to judge it based on the company and, and, the, and the technology you're moving. But the sellers that are out there and the opportunities that are out there, I think, are, you know, are obviously very, very broad. Yeah, and, and you mentioned uh, something that I think is important, that there are great salespeople, great sales leaders everywhere, but there's also some nuances around culture. So I'm, mm -hmm. I'm winning whatever I'm selling, but just technology generically, we're winning the U.S., we're expanding globally, so we drop some sales and marketing talent into London and Paris. What's the same and what's different, or maybe said differently, what are the common mistakes you see particularly tech companies make when they go to spin up an outpost in someplace like London or Paris? That's a great question. And one of the common mistakes, I would say, is that it is culturally the same, right? I mean, it is the, the UK, it's uh, two countries separated by a common language. The cultures are similar, but they are important differences. I think there's important differences in the culture of selling, and there are some important differences in terms of just the culture in general. So I'd say that's one, like just not understanding quite the nuances and, and the way that selling is done in the U.S., it's not to say that there's vast differences, but not recognizing that there are differences, I would say, is, the, is one, of the, one of the bigger mistakes. I'd say the other thing is you have to hire the right sales people because typically, as you said, you're dropping first a couple of sellers and maybe to include the technical side of selling into a country or region. You, know, you have to get those extremely entrepreneurial people because they are way out on the pointy end of the spear or on an island or whichever you know, analogy you want to use. So they have to be comfortable working with very, very little support from a marketing and generally from a company standpoint until they can start to find some revenue and start to you know, justify the additional resource and investment in that area. 
but they have to know that that's the situation they're coming into. Can't hire somebody who's expecting to get full support immediately because they won't be successful and you will have just wasted a lot of time while everybody's figuring that out. So it's, it's important to get the right kind of entrepreneurial people, but they absolutely exist. To your point, out there in, in all of those countries, you can find those great people to work with. It's just a matter of taking time to get them in. Absolutely. So let's talk about sales and marketing at scale, because you have a leadership position now and have multiple leadership positions in public companies. When you think about what good to great looks like in sales and marketing, both in the relationship and, and the operational cadence, what's top of mind? And kind of back to the earlier question I asked you, what kind of skills and traits are you looking for when you're hiring on your team or you're looking at you know the sales organization and thinking about how do they continue to scale and grow? So a couple different things there. In sales, you're moving from pure hunters to a combination of hunters and farmers. Obviously, from a marketing standpoint, moving to people who are more specialized in terms of their abilities, whether they're specialized in field-based demand generation or digital demand generation. So you're really looking for people who are deeper and deeper into, you know, into their specific skill area still with a, you know, somewhat of a breadth of knowledge across marketing, particularly in the leadership positions that you're hiring, but your line managers and specific skill people are getting deeper into their, into their expertise. You're beginning to grow the team in terms of what you can do, like adding in, for example, industry marketing or, you know, or other pieces that help you scale. As you're growing and the company's starting to grow, you're starting to click on common use cases and things like that. You need people who know how to scale and operationalize those components from a marketing standpoint, you know, marketing operations and, and all the other components that really make a marketing organization run and align around, you know, specific, you know, specific metrics and, and growth for pipeline and obviously revenue alignment to the sales teams. And as the sales team starts to segment and grow the different kinds of salespeople, you need to be able to, to provide the right kinds of tools, leads, and, and kind of integration, if you will, with that sales org as you're trying to grow and drive demand. So you're looking for people who are more specific in terms of their skills, very demand focused, and, and starting to, to grow and operationalize, and probably who've had some experience with other organizations, operationalizing marketing around demand engine at scale, the lead flow and, and the demand flow within the organization, and moving that through. Those are the things I think people should be thinking about. Once you've started to get and understand what the repeatable selling processes and use cases are, and sales are starting to grow, you have to scale marketing commensurately to be able to meet those needs of the organization. And the world's a much different place than when you and I started and, and got our first jobs in marketing. When you think about that from a, from a discipline perspective, what, what's different in sales now than when um, you, you first joined the workforce and first got into tech? I mean, there's a tremendous amount of technology that's available to a seller now. That's what I've seen in terms of helping them understand and do account planning, territory planning, and understanding what the digital signals are where they can go and look for opportunities. The number of tools out there for intention to buy and things like that, for getting a, a view of account and an account plan, the digital signals across the plan for a seller now are better than ever, right? There are so many different tools and technology. So a good seller these days really, to me, understands how to use those tools and technologies to go and prosecute their, their leads, prosecute and sell into their patch, regardless of how big or what that patch looks like. I think that's the biggest difference, Pat, is the, is the tools that somebody has or a sell, seller has to, to understand okay, where are, where's a buying group? Where are the opportunities? Where's intent 
that I can or can't see. There's so many things that are not only the digital signals that you're receiving directly to your organization, but ability to click into and tap into digital signals outside of your organization, um, which give you a very broad view of where the opportunities might be that you might see or opportunities that you don't see that you need to go in and uncover. And the world is much more digital, certainly than when when we originally started our careers. And when you think yeah. about that now in terms of how do you bring all these pieces together at scale, what would be your kind of uh, main lessons learned or rules of thumb in terms of trying to drive that sales and marketing alignment that's going to get you to consistently capturing revenue, making the plan and, and driving performance? So a couple things there for me that I talk about with my team and share with sales leaders that I work with. So one is marketing exists to help sales. We want to align to and with and partner with sales leadership, sales all the way up and down the organization, whether it's with the field sellers through to line managers all the way up to you know, sales leadership. But we need to make sure we're aligned around targeting revenue and pipelines. It's clearly the thing that's going to make sure we're continuing to drive and grow the organization. Secondly, I look for and encourage a bias for action. Talked about it a little bit earlier, but you know, I want people in the organization who are going to be doing and are moving forward with direction with guidelines, but if they don't, I want people who are, you know, not sitting back on their heels but are thinking and taking action and, and moving forward. So bias for action. A third thing that I really, you know, look for and we use heavily and have used heavily in many organizations is really to measure and analyze, right? You've got to be able to instrument your demand engine and understand everything that's happening both in the demand engine and really more broadly across marketing, right? There's enough digital tools out there and, and, and tools out there for measuring the metrics and what's happening and to analyze that to look for those signals. Like we were talking about earlier, signals of where there might be intent, signals of where we're having success and, and using that data. So you've got to use data and measure and, measure and analyze. Thirdly, I want to make sure we're thinking at scale. I tend to think, you know, in terms of things like content, like let's, let's create content that can be used in multiple ways. I tend to use the analogy of five-way beef, some stuff I was doing when I was working with the, the Navy many years ago, where you know, it would be served as a, as a roast the first day, sliced the second day, chopped the third day, fourth day it would be uh, in a sandwich, and the fifth day it would be in a stew. Like it just, you got to be able to use <laughs> your content in multiple ways. So I used the five-way beef analogy, which is uh, you know, the way it was served on the ships to tell people, let's make sure we're using content at scale and really everything we do, we need to be thinking at scale. And then final, just be collaborative across the organization, both within marketing, but to all the other components, because the only way for you to be successful as a marketer, as a seller, really in general, is to make sure you're, you're collaborating openly with, uh, with the other parts, because that will help you be a better marketer and I think be a better seller and, and really help drive the organization towards its goal. So those are a couple of the things that I tell people when they start in the org that I expect and I want to see out of them and that we try to do and live you know, in the marketing organizations I lead. And you're actually hitting on something with that last point around collaboration that I think is critical, John, which is, you know, I think all the best sellers that I observe and the best teams I observe know that selling is a team sport and really aligning mm -hmm. around the culture. Any best practices or suggestions you'd give in terms of how do you drive that that collaboration and, and enable that culture to make sure that your team is actually executing to full advantage? I'd say the first thing is really to, to live it yourself, right? I mean, lead by example is what I try to do and that's what I, I look for in leaders and it's what I, you know, encourage across the organization. I think that's one. Two, you can set up forums and try to do things that encourage that across the organization, whether it's Feedback Fridays or 
you know, lunch and learns. I mean, there's just different ways to to create open forums for communication and collaboration. So I think it's, you know, I think it's making sure that you are living it, but also encouraging it through the forms and functions and, and processes you put in place within the organization that can help make sure that uh, that you're um, encouraging collaboration. You don't want to do things by committee. You need to make sure you do that within, you know, reasonable structure and organization, but you know, definitely you can encourage it within the organization yourself. Absolutely. And, and that's probably a good, a, a good lead up to kind of the summary question, because you've been very generous with your time. When you think about, you know, across your career, you know, the best sales leader or leaders you've ever worked with, who's the person that, that stands out to you and, and why? And what did, what did you learn? Yeah, given the span of my career in the, in the regions and geographies and places I've worked, I've been fortunate to work with many great sales leaders, as I'm sure you have too. Everything from early stage companies to, you know, companies working at scale. And obviously the kind of profile you need for an early stage sales leader is generally different than somebody you're going to need for, you know, for something that's very scalable. Some make the transition, some may not. So one of the leaders I've worked with was very good at managing, for example, the qualification process. And this is just a kind of lesson learned that I always took away from because I always really appreciated this. He always asked his teams during kind of the deal review process, he asked them what he calls the why buys. And those are why buy now, why buy from us, and why buy anything, right? So it's an interesting set of questions to ask someone who's trying to sell to a customer prospect and thinks they have a deal. Because it turns out if you can answer those questions, then you are definitely well on your way to having a deal. So I always appreciate the, uh, you know, the why buy questions. There's many different ways to obviously qualify, Medpick and many others, but those are three very simple ones, which, you know, if you can't answer them, then it's really hard to believe that you're, you're getting towards, uh, you know, getting towards a deal. And I think that's what we're all trying to do is understand what are the signals, what do we need to do to, to get a little closer to a deal? Uh, not to mention the fact that I think everyone took away a, a five-way beef recipe that's that's <laughs> highly leverageable regardless of industry and regardless of segment. So, John, you've been yep. hugely generous with your time. If, if folks want to uh, find out more from you or get more of your insight, what's the best way to get in contact? Yeah, probably just reach out to me through LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn. You can reach out to me if you have any, any further questions. Fantastic. Well, uh, just wrapping up today with John Carissa, VP of Marketing for Hortonworks. John, thanks so much for your time and uh, good luck in the foxhole and happy selling. Thanks, Pat. Thank you. You've been listening to Predictable Revenue Radio with your host, Patrick Morrissey, Chief Marketing Officer at Altify, the sales transformation company. One of the many shows here on the ever-growing Funnel Radio channel for at-work listeners like you. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Revenue Rebels right here in SLMA Radio. With our host, Roan Morgan, the CEO of Demand Lab, the sponsor of the program as well. So let's get started. Bring in those rebellious revenue rebels with Roan and her friends right now. Hey, Roan. Thank you, Paul, for the introduction. Welcome back to Revenue Rebels. I'm Roan Morgan, your host, and this program is sponsored by Demand Lab. 
Thank you listeners for joining us today. The guest today is a rule-breaking marketing leader uh, who is joining us to discuss the four steps to accelerating company growth. Daryl Prale is the chief marketing officer at Vanilla Soft, which is a sales engagement platform that keeps your sales team busy and focused on engaging your leads and growing revenue. Daryl, you've been with Vanilla Soft for a little over a year now. You've been working in high-tech marketing for over 25 years, spanning startups, consolidations, acquisitions, and IPOs. To get us started, can you share a little bit with us and the audience on your background and uh, how your career has progressed over that 25 years? I can absolutely do that, Rowan. Thank you so much for having me on the show today. I'm really excited. Love your show. My story isn't as glamorous as you might think, although it is perhaps a little bit unique in terms of marketing because I'm not a marketing by education, right? I do not have a marketing degree and I applaud all those who do. I came at this the complete opposite way. I was a computer programmer for years. And uh, and as time progressed, I got more and more antsy staring at that screen. I was good at it. I enjoyed it. I loved it. It, it was a season for me. But then I'm like, you know, my goodness, get me out of here because I'm going to go nuts. And then I spent the next uh, few more years trying to figure out the game plan. Like any person in a career will try to do how to get from here to there because I've now figured out that's where I want to be. Mm-hmm. For me, I was unique, but not that unique in the sense that I had a, a specialty and as far as technology goes. And everybody kept on wanting to pull me back into that uh, that field of high-tech development because of my specialty. And, fi- and I couldn't get out of it. So what I finally ended up doing mm-hmm. was I said, I'm going to go work for this software vendor who's technology I was a specialist in and I picked up the, the my lovely bride and we moved to New England from Canada I became a sales engineer because when I went there my specialty was no more special than any other employee because they all had the same specialties but I was good as a sales engineer helping close enterprise deals because I knew the product so well from sales engineer that they were great they recognized I had some skills they moving from uh, sales engineer to product management from product management into product marketing. And then my wife and I decided we were going to have a, a family. And I might say we decided, let's say nature decided for us. And <laughs> ultimately we decided that we were going to have our kids back in Canada. So off we go back to Canada. And I got my first marketing job at a software company, a small little company that very quickly over a couple of years became a very large company. And within a matter of years, I was running marketing for the sixth largest software company in the world at the time called Sybase. They were known at the time for their database products. Uh, today, they're SAP. Uh, so it just went boom, and my career took off, and, and life was grand. And then from there, it was just a matter of uh, multiple hops, as is like to happen in high tech. I went to a company called Cognos, where I ran product marketing globally. Cognos is the leader in business intelligence. It's now IBM, so another acquisition. From there, I went to a company called what the time was web plan supply chain. Now they're called Canaxis IPO. Uh, we raised over $30 million there. <clears throat> Did another supply chain company, raised another $20 million. Did a public safety company, sold the company for four times their earnings. Did an e-commerce company, took them public. And then the best part, I, I forgot one point. After we sold the public safety company, which today's Motorola, uh, I got fired. It's the classic, we're going to buy you because we mm-hmm. want you. And then the, the whole management gets fired. That was the first time I'd ever been let go in my life. So did the e-commerce company and so I went to them public. And then, and then it was simply a case of 
I got tired of doing it for everybody else. And, and I took time out and I spent about the next eight years or so having my own agency. So I was out there every day with all these wonderful companies. And then, and then Vanilla Soft came knocking and I told them, nope, go away. Don't want to talk to you. The recruiter was, let's just say, aggressive and relentless. I he he wore me down, and over a year later, here I am, and it's been just a blast. Bit of a change to go back to working for somebody else again, but what I love about working for a company as opposed to as a contractor is I get it's like a to me it's a chess game. I get to move all the pieces on the board, not just one piece. So mm-hmm. as a as a marketer. You know, you got lots of tools that are in your bag when you can have the chance to move them all together for an end goal. Man, that's fun. So that's my career in a nutshell. It was a long-winded answer. I told you it wasn't that exciting. That's awesome. Well, persistence pays. So clearly it paid off for both the recruiter and you, which is good news. It is um, true. And, you know, that trajectory, I think, is a really exciting path to take. I know other folks that work full-time in sort of, you know, marketing, marketing that have come up through sort of engineer background and then into product marketing. That path, I think, gives a great perspective. But also what I like about your background is that you started, you know, you took the job as a sales engineer and the SE is a I think a really critical role of helping the sales uh, individual actually educate and uh, get their leads sort of primed to close ultimately. So it's an important role, uh, a lot it's of a, it's impact. A huge role. But I think it's fantastic that that is sort of was your launching point into the marketing space too. That's pretty cool. Well, the funny so, part was even at a couple of those jobs, I ultimately, even though I came on as a marketer, I ultimately was the VP of sales and marketing. So mm. I've had, I've had the good fortune slash misfortune of, of owning a quota and having the team as well as the marketing. So I do understand the whole revenue side for better, for worse, but my preference, my preference is marketing. Yeah. Well, there's an important connection between the two, obviously. And, uh, the more that we move forward and we look at the technologies that are out there, the more I think that connection becomes stronger. So Agreed. when you joined Vanilla Soft, what were some of the marketing challenges that the company was facing? I made a list, full disclosure to the audience. Roan had given me a heads up on some of the questions. So I actually sat down and I made a list. And I, when I looked at the list, I'm like, I can't share all this. Oh, my goodness. But, uh, you know, in the end, I, I'm going to share it because I don't think challenges that we face here as a marketer are technically much different than anybody else faces. But maybe you'll feel a little less alone. So here's my list. Uh, we had a really cool product. We were the oldest player in the space, but we were the least well-known. No one knew who we were. I would call us an engineering company, not a marketing mm-hmm. company. So fantastic product. The product had incredible differentiators, but nobody in the industry understood that those differentiators that we were so good at even mattered. We knew, our customers knew, but no one else knew. And if no one else knows, of course, no one else is talking about it. I got a lot of lacks, as we call. We had a lack of positioning relative to our industry. In other words, you know, what do you do? Today, we're a sales engagement provider. They'd never even heard of the term sales engagement mm-hmm. when I started. Uh, we had a lack of awareness of who our competitors were or what their go-to-market strategy was. So when I find at 30 days in, I went to the executive team and I said, hey, we're sales engagement. Hey, these are our competitors. They all kind of looked at me with blank faces and they said, sales what? And who are those people? They were just not aware because they were in their own bubble doing their own thing. 
they really didn't have an awareness of who their target personas were. They had no awareness of who their target markets were. They knew where they had traction. That's a difference. But they didn't know where they were going to be, you know, rock stars. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the industry, they had no thought leadership. They had no relationships with an- industry analysts. They had no relationships with influencers. They had no relationships with media. And the only time they appeared in the media was when it was a paid placement. They had no social media presence. And when I mean by presence, I mean we were doing the whole talk out of the megaphone, look at us, look at us, look at us. But there was no reciprocation. There was no engagement. There was no conversation. There was no banter. There was no nothing. It was just like, see us at this trade show. Mm -hmm. Look at our new report. There was no designated spokesperson, the CEO by default, but really there was no like, you do this and you do that. There was no defined roles. We Mm -hmm. didn't know, again, like, okay, when it comes to analysts, you're the person. When it comes to whatever, you're the person. We had no investment capital. We had no A round, B round, C round because we had, get this, started with a small little friends and family round back in 2005. And we'd been making money ever since. We didn't need money. We had money in the bank. We had lots of money in the bank. But why is that a problem? Because no one knows who you are. When you raise a lot of money, your profile goes up dramatically and you're the next best thing and people want to try you out. If you don't raise that money, no one knows who you are. We had no guerrilla tactics going on. So there was, there was nothing bold about us. There was nothing audacious about us. There's nothing controversial about us. We were just like vanilla. Kind of like vanilla. Mm-hmm. We had a lack of understanding of what marketing tactics worked for us and what didn't. We had a lack of champions. You know, those people in the industry, in the world who will go to the ends of the world to say that this product, this company is awesome. Listen to me. We did just nobody out there doing it. No one had been groomed. We had a lack of understanding of where to spend our marketing budget. And we were spending it lots of places. And they were doing all the right things, but it wasn't concentrated. It wasn't optimal. So those were my lack of. To be fair to the organization and everything they had done, they did a lot of things right. So I inherited some good things, too. I had complete and utter permission to be bold and aggressive and to execute. I had lots of budget. Now, I was not short on budget. I had an incredible CEO who just got it, but was willing to let me do it. I had a fantastic alignment with my head of sales. I had really happy customers. I wasn't concerned about the company not being around next year. You know, we were healthy. We were viable. We were in a hot emerging category. I had lots to talk about. And because my target audience are sales and marketers themselves involved in the revenue process, me personally, it was so easy for me to relate to them, the pains and the challenges they're going through that it wasn't like I had to learn something complex like semiconductors or something else like that that I had no affinity to. So those were the challenges. And that's also what I had going for me. That's awesome. That is quite a list. And uh, at least, uh, you know, being able to talk to what I actually call my people certainly does make it uh, give you one step ahead, but that's probably the longest list that I've heard. Very comprehensive. And I think also incredibly exciting. That's the sort of thing that you can just wrap your arms around and start digging through and you know, you're going to make impact. Got lots of opportunity for 100%. that. Yeah. So you, that was the word opportunity. You nailed it. And that's how I viewed it. It wasn't a bad thing. It was an opportunity. Yeah. It was an exciting yeah. thing. Yeah. We need to take a quick break, just a minute to hear from our sponsors. And uh, when we get back, we're going to walk through how you went about sort of revamping marketing and uh, getting through this very long laundry list of everything um, you just listed out for us. We'll be right back to continue with Daryl on how he has accelerated company growth strategically through a marketing transformation. 
And just a quick reminder that uh, Demand Lab, the sponsor of this program, helps organizations like yours transform the revenue potential by connecting their greatest assets, which are people, processes, technology, and data. They do this through customized revenue ecosystem solutions by leveraging marketing data technology, data science, governance and analytics, and content Demand Lab helps B2B organizations like yours advance business goals and drive revenue. Sounds pretty simple. They certainly know how to do it, and you can too if you simply visit their website, demandlab.com. Learn more about Demand Lab solutions at demandlab.com and find out how you can transform your revenue potential as well. All right, while you're doing that, let's uh, pick up the second half of today's interview. Thanks, Paul. We've been speaking with Daryl Prail, who is the CMO at VanillaSoft, and we're walking through his process of accelerating company growth through marketing transformation. So Daryl, you just went through a very long list of what we called exciting opportunities to make impact. Um, I'd love for you to share a little bit about the process of revamping the marketing department. Like you alluded to it in the opening to the podcast, Four steps. I broke it down into four steps as though I can manage this over, over, otherwise it overwhelms you. And in my mind, each step, I gave myself three months and I had coordinated with the executive team, especially the CEO, that this was my plan. So, you know, ironically, and I had an interview process that said, what's your 90 day plan? My response was, I don't have one. I have a one year plan and it's simple. Four steps. Number one, triage. I'll go into that in a second. Number two, rinse and repeat. Number three, make some noise. Number four, grow. So that was it. So show triage is just get your house in order, get your systems in order, get the baseline of all your metrics, get rid of all the technology you're not using, optimize your website, make sure your marketing automation choices are are there and it's integrated with all the things you need to be able to integrate with. Make sure you've got your dashboard set up so you can communicate with your stakeholders what's going on so you can trend and see what's happening. Triage, get your marketing ops in order. That was the first thing. And we did that for us. We ended up standardizing on HubSpot, going into VanillaSoft. For the data side, we use Zoom Info. We took it off the website and put it all in a Google Tag Manager, relaunched a new website to simply get that mm-hmm. stable. We do all of our project management and team management using Divi HQ. We optimize all of our keywords using SEM Rush, and we do all of our video, whatnot, on our live streams using Vimeo and Wistia. For us, and whenever we look at tech, the first thing I always look at is, is can it integrate with HubSpot? I'm not advocating for HubSpot. You can use Marketo. You can use Pardot. For us, they already had it. It was adequate for our needs. What I picked from scratch, probably not, but it's done the job. I wasn't going to reinvent that piece. I was just going to build on that as my foundation. So that was the first thing we did. That took just over three months. And that was just crazy. Just getting, you know, the ability to have a common tracking codes, for example, you know, what are the definitions and make sure we can always tie it back to Google analytics. So we know where what's converting and what's not tie it back to AdWords, all that stuff. That took a lot of time. Mm -hmm. So that was triage. Mm -hmm. Rinse and repeat said, now that we've got our systems, now that we can measure everything, now we need to put in repeatable demand generation programs that are going to feed the pipeline but we need to make them efficient and scalable and repeatable, hence rinse and repeat. For example, what we in- introduced with regularity was that the second Tuesday of every month was going to be a webinar 
on a product piece of functionality. And we can invite the whole world, but it's really des- it's targeted for our actual customers, but anybody can come. The fourth Tuesday was always going to be thought leadership piece, you know, about the industry, trends, whatever, something that's bold and aggressive, bringing in expert panelists, leveraging their brand, right? We always knew that two days after that fourth Tuesday, we would then launch our monthly newsletter. So the list went on and we had everything was scheduled to the day of the month. And we'd always work backwards. And Divi HQ gives us this ability to do this. It says we have a standard webinar promotion schedule, three emails, social media posts, tracking codes for every single panelist, rinse and repeat, just do it. So the team knew exactly what to do. We weren't faking it. We weren't trying to, we weren't dropping the ball. It was all there. It was formulaic. It was templated. And I could tell the rest of my company, it was always the second Tuesday. It was always the fourth Tuesday, whatever it might be, they knew. So everybody was trained and conditioned. Rinse and repeat. And by three months in, we had, you know, our first webinar, we had 40 people. By our third webinar, we had 180 people, right? And our, some of our more recent uh, live streams, we've moved from webinars to live streams now, we're averaging almost over a thousand people. It's just rinse and repeat, do the campaigns. We know what to do. It feeds the pipeline. One of the things that I think can be a challenge for a new marketing leader that's coming in to, to really transform an organization is an expectation from executive stakeholders that you're going to kind of skip all of this and head right into growth in the first quarter. Um, you're going to be, deals are going to be larger, sales are going to come in faster, there's going to be tons of new leads, and you've got a lot to get done, and they're, they're like, look, we don't have a year to get to growth. But what you've talked about here is critical, and, and this is how we talk about it with our clients, is you've got to kind of go through the steps to get to growth when you're, you know, depending on where you're at. Like, we'll look at the maturity level um, where you're at and what needs to be done in order to get to that growth phase. And it's going to be different. It's not always a year, but how did you talk with your executive leadership and sort of manage their expectations and get them on board with this process? So great question. And that is critical. So I did two things. First off, I coordinated nonstop, non-freaking stop, open mic, shall we say, with the CEO and with the VP of sales. Those are my two Mm-hmm. closest allies, and they could also be the two people who are going to sewer me if I don't do it right and don't engage with them. Keeping them aligned is critical, and that means open dialogue. That means agreement on expectations. Like in my head of sales, I sat down and I said, how do you define a lead? You know, a marketing qualified lead means what to you? So let's get agreement. If I give you a marketing qualified lead, when will you follow up on that? Let's get a service mm-hmm. level agreement between you and I. If I don't give you that lead, you can bust my butt. If you don't follow up as we discuss, I can bust your butt. Do we agree with this? Yes, we agree with this because we're both trying to achieve the same thing. Right. Um, with the CEO and the head of sales, what I said was, listen, I'm going to do status quo. I'm not going to go, shall we say, speak from the megaphone. I'm going to just, I'm going to sustain what you've been doing in my, you know, my first two steps, triage, rinse and repeat. But rinse and repeat will be, you know, the point where we start to kind of crank up the volume. So really, the first three months, just forget I'm not here, okay, because I'm getting my house in order so I can get a baseline because going back to the CEO, what do you want to do? You want to measure me, right? You want to make sure that my salary is justified and the investment we're spending on programs is justified and it's getting an ROI. Well, we can't do that without a baseline. Do we agree? Yes, of course we agree. All right, so let me get my house in order. 
and I'll communicate with you all along the way. And the funny part was I needed his sponsorship because for me to go integrate with all these other tools like VanillaSoft, I had to go and work with my own R&D team to customize our instance of VanillaSoft. That required sponsorship. Mm -hmm. So I had to do that. When it came to the campaign side, I managed expectations again. So a couple of things that were interesting. I said, listen, these first couple of campaigns are not meant to generate leads, quote unquote. They're meant to perfect the process, the template, so that we get that down pat. So then, you know, the second, third, fourth time we do these things, now we're generating leads. And I said, so, you know, if I get zero people showing up on my webinar, that's fine by me, that first one. And they look at you like you have three heads, and I'm saying, it's process. And they said, okay. And I said, but it will get better. And as long as you execute and you manage expectations, right? they trust you. You're building trust every step of the way. So that was that was huge for us, ongoing communication. The other thing I had to do for us, for example, we had a really... We were really focused on one feature of our product. But when I talk, and that's what all of our AdWords spend was around, was really around this one feature. And when I talked to my head of sales, he goes, dude, that sucks. He goes, I get all these leads. I get tons of leads from the AdWords. But one in 10 might actually be valid. So what I ended up doing was I dramatically scaled back my spend around the AdWords around that one feature, which upset some people. And I went to my stakeholders again. And I said, the lead flow volume is going to drop. But if this goes to plan, because I'm going to diversify and go to other areas, we're actually going to get a higher close rate and a bigger deal size. Don't be confused by less volume. That's my prediction. And they said, okay. And then sure enough, you know, a few months later, you look back and go, yeah, our deal size has gone up dramatically. Mm-hmm. You know, our conversion rate's gone up dramatically. So even though our numbers and say free trials, for example, were down, our results were much, much better. But I had to communicate that. If you don't communicate that, well, you're hoping. And, That's the biggest Yeah, thing. and the only way to be able to communicate that growth would be to put in the processes, the systems that you did at that first stage of triage. So exactly. lots of communication, but then also really developing systems that enable baseline measurement and growth measurement. And without that, you're not going to have... A lot of ground to stand on as you're moving forward and you're, they see the leads coming in slower and slower or fewer and fewer. Doing that rinse and repeat allowed my people to see where can we implement automated processes or build up templates that we can reuse. That allowed me to make our demand generation efforts very scalable because I knew in the coming quarters, I was going to throw more and more on my team. So if we didn't have the systems to automate as much as possible, mm-hmm. I can never scale my people. Yeah. Without systems and processes in place with, I I think that the sales uh, partners that you're working with can understand that certainly and relate to that because they're dealing and working within a sales process. Marketing has been in the long past, certainly not in the last 10 years, but we're still growing much more on the creative side and the sort of a bit of a process, but also a bit of a black box. And now with technology and everything that we're trying to achieve with it, there is a a process that needs to be put in place. And I imagine that sales leaders and, and other stakeholders can appreciate putting a process in place as long as it's well communicated and expectations are managed. So that's really interesting. The last two points, make some noise and grow. So make some noise was really all about communications. In other words, get out there, be bold, get on social, be contentious, pick a fight with a bad guy. I told my boss, I said, 
we have two roles. You, Mr. CEO, you're the professor. You're going to be the trusted advisor whom all the, you know, the financial folks love. You're the good cop. I'm the troublemaker. I'm the bad cop. I'm going to get out there and pick fights. I'm going to get noise. I'm going to get contentious. I'm going to be public about it. And I said, so what's going to happen here is, is that our competition is going to get riled up and they're going to talk about us and they're going to curse us. And I said, that's great. That's what I want. We need to be in the conversation. And then where necessary, you're going to walk behind me and clean up behind me. And he's like, okay, so I'm good cop. You're a bad cop. And I said, yeah, he goes, okay, I can do that. So we understood what we were doing. So make some noise. It was all about that. AR, analyst relations, PR, public relations. It was all about social. And it was about content, 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 content. Right. And then the last stage, grow. It's about, okay, now where can we expand? What other categories can we go into? What other verticals can we go into? What other events can we go to? And what other geographies can we go into? And that's where we're at. That's fantastic. That's really exciting. Unfortunately, we've actually reached our time. We're a bit over our time. And what I think we should be doing here, uh, Daryl, is planning on our next conversation together. So I've got a bunch more questions, tons of stuff that I think we could talk through on this. And I'd love to be able to invite you back uh, to chat with us in our next podcast. I love I, I'd it. love for you just to share a little bit with the listeners on how they could reach out to you. And please, if you can spell uh, all that thought, great info, because <laughs> that name um, could be spelled in a few different ways. It rhymes, <laughs> doesn't it? I know. It, I understand. Okay, no problem. So just go on LinkedIn. It's Daryl Prale. So Daryl, D-A-R-R-Y-L, Prale, P like Peter, R-A-I-L-L. Let's just like that. All right, Daryl Prale. You can get me on Twitter. I'm uh, My handle is opinionated, spelled funky, O-H-P-I-N-I-O-N, the number eight, T-E-D. Because, hey, you got to have an opinion. And beyond that, DarylPrail.com. But more than anything, just go to VanillaSoft.com. All my contact deets are right Fantastic. there. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining today, Daryl. I'm your host, Roan Morgan. And as always, uh, you can contact me on LinkedIn at R-H-O-A-N Morgan. Now, back over to you, Paul, in the studio. You've been listening to another group of Revenue Rebels. Right here in the Funnel Radio Network. Ratwork listeners like you. Welcome back, everybody, to Sales Enablement Radio. The one show. The only show about content, tools, and leadership that makes sales enablement the fastest growth strategy around today to help salespeople like yours sell more effectively and efficiently. The man is going to guide us through this strange new world. Our host for the show, Ralph Grimsey. Hey, Ralph. here at the Brevik Group, the program sponsor. At Sales Enablement Radio, we talk with CEOs, authors, chief sales officers, and sales leaders about sales enablement. It's a topic at the forefront of modern selling in most organizations. Today, I'm joined by Chris Day. We're excited to have Chris join today's discussion as we explore the topic of situational selling strategies that really focus on helping accelerate reps' performance. Before we get into the discussion today with Chris, let's go ahead and have you start by introducing yourself to this audience talk a little bit about Bizarre Voice, 
in your role there. Yeah, hi. So yeah, I've been at Bizarre Voice now for nine years, if you're not familiar. Bizarre Voice is a software as a service platform, essentially the ratings and reviews platform that you see on major retailers like Walmart, Best Buy, Target, et cetera. You see the reviews on their site, they use our software to collect that from their shoppers. A lot of people don't know that we exist, but it's been a lot of fun to be a part of the ever-growing and changing e-commerce world. Obviously, Amazon did reviews first, and we do it for everybody else. We do it for retailers. We also have a new program where brands can collect reviews as well. And if they collect with us and the retailers use us, then we can actually push the reviews to the retailers. So now a brand can have more reviews than their competitors. I run a sales team of about 11 inside sales reps, and we're working on getting more and more brands to get more and more reviews to help the products. That's fantastic. And you're based in Austin, Texas, right? I mean, this is an emerging tech scene in Austin. I'm sure you guys are excited to be part of that. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. We've got great talent coming out of the universities here. We're one of the kind of the Cinderella stories of startups in Austin, big companies like Dell, but then there's lots of startups and we're kind of the biggest that's in the middle, I guess. And so it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, that's great. We're seeing obviously a lot of organizations here that are based in California that are starting to explore options outside of California for many reasons. And we know of, uh, of many peers and many, uh, many customers that are, are looking at Austin and other spots to, uh, yeah, for great there's talent. A lot of movement here. Specific- yeah. Yes, yes. And, and you can see it in your home prices. We're coming your way. <laughs> yeah. So let's start, uh, let's start by talking about uh, situational awareness. This is a conversation that, you know, Chris and you and I had started a, a while back. But this idea of situational awareness is really a core part of how we think about selling methodologies at, at Brevet um, and how we, how we train reps to really understand what's going on in that customer situation to you know, be adaptable and to really call sort of the right play at the right time to move that deal forward and and to find success in that deal. And one of the things that really is core to this approach is thinking about pattern matching. And that's kind of a wonky term, um, but really what we're, we're striving to do here is make sure that reps can assess that landscape and sort of really find commonalities in that situation so they can make the right next play or the right next move. And I'm curious, talk to me a little bit about, you've got a a team of inside sales folks. I imagine these are young folks. How have you sort of thought about sort of situational awareness and this pattern matching aspect with this team? Whenever I was kind of tasked with building this team, you're right, they're very junior. And so I was thinking, how can I get this team to be more seasoned and senior as soon as possible so that then they can produce as much as possible quickly? Just looking at what makes a senior rep good and it is having that experience and the uh, situational awareness what's going on on the call and I was on calls and so I was thinking well how can I get my junior reps to kind of take that on and so really I broke it down into two things one is what are some commonalities that we're always facing like um, the personas on the other end of the phone luckily we're selling to the same types of companies meaning brands that sell products through retailers There's some variance when it comes to, let's say, a cosmetic company versus an electronics company. But then it's known a lot about the the role of the person, so whether they're um, a sales executive or a marketing executive, then learning the the patterns that are important to them, um, and then what to listen for and what are the common things and pains that they're trying to solve so that then they can quickly get up to speed on that and meet that person where they where they need to be or what, you know, the problems that they're trying to solve so, um, with our solutions. And then the other thing is just having experience going through a sales cycle. If you have 
almost like if you've been there before, then you're more prepared for them the next time and the next time. So we really work on that, which is the person and then the situation as kind of the two key building blocks when it comes to situational awareness. And during the onboarding, we've got a call recording software. We use uh, gong.io. Mm-hmm. We've been using that as a way to pick apart calls and scenarios with different personas and use that to train the team so that they can then be prepared faster without having to go through years and years of experience of learning how to handle these types of um, these scenarios. So this whole idea is really based on a premise that there are patterns out there that could be found, right? And I think many times we, we talk with sales leaders and even sales reps, and we hear, well, this deal's unique. And like every deal's unique, right? What did you find as you started to focus on these personas and these other situational factors that led you to believe there was actually a pattern, that there was some commonality out there, and that you're not dealing with these unicorns, that every deal is a unicorn out um, We use the MedPick sales methodology as a way to qualify our deals. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. um, when you break down, you know, what are the key metrics that the person or that the company uses to make decisions on new solutions or wh- who is the economic buyer and what's the compelling event and what's the quantified pain and all those things. Essentially, I took that and while I've got a fairly a more transactional sales cycle, I broke it down into four major building blocks of where a deal is and we mark them red, green or yellow to then, you know, what do we need to do on the next call? And so those four things mm-hmm. are, first is, do we have a champion? And so we spend a lot of time on champion building or champion testing. The second thing that we do is I'm, I'm asking, what is the quantified pain that we found on the call? And this is probably the thing that the reps need to do the most, has the steepest learning curve when they first get started, just knowing how to ask questions to then find that quantified pain that the person on the other end of the phone is trying to solve. The third thing is, do we have a compelling event? in a timeline. And then the fourth thing is economic buyer and the decision process. So those, while yes, all calls are different and all deals are different because all companies are different, those are the four main building blocks that are when it comes to that kind of pattern recognition. Good. You know, for a new young sales force that's coming into maybe their first or second sales job, maybe the first job in tech, it's largely inside highly high velocity transactional nature. What's been the reaction from your team as, the, as you've deployed this approach you know, really kind of helping them both onboard and ramp, but also be successful in their role. What's well, been their reaction? Well, I think it's really good. I mean, A, they don't know any better. So there's that. I got, kind <laughs> right. of a blank, I, got, I got a blank slate, so there's that. I think it's good because it gives them direction. Here's what I've seen a lot of companies do poorly is usually onboarding means you shadow somebody. And one of my favorite books that I've based a lot of my training and things on is The Sales Acceleration Formula by Mark Roberts, the guy from um, HubSpot. And it really talks about how uh, shadowing is such a terrible way to get somebody ramped up because everybody has their own style. So I may be, you know, very outspoken and gregarious on my calls. And if that's not your personality type and you're a new rep that's going through uh, Mm -hmm. training and you're sitting on my calls and our styles are completely different, you may think, oh, my gosh, I've got to be like that in order to be successful. And then they don't know how to do that. And it's just really, really tough. What I've been trying to do is, by creating the, um, these building blocks allows for you to then kind of make it your own, use your own style, but mm-hmm. the same building blocks of a call and a deal still remain no matter what your style is. And so it's good then to, um, for a rep to then kind of self-analyze a deal and say, like, so whenever we put, um, they put the name of the champion in the box 
for that part of the deal. I've got a little spreadsheet that we use to keep up with it. Anyways, and I ask them, so do you think they're a champion? And then they say, yes, no, or maybe, and we talk about it or whatever, and then we mark it red, green, or yellow. And then you do that across all the other ones, and then you can t- kind of take a step back and see, hmm, seems like I'm always not finding a, a compelling event in all my deals, and maybe that's my thing that I need to start working on. So now they can actually see it visually in this form. Now they can kind of be their own self-coach versus feeling like all they got to do is just mimic what another rep is doing. Yeah, that's great. Having that ability to self-diagnose their own gaps and deals and skills and capabilities, that's got to help you as a coach. If they're doing some of that already, how has it changed, you know, whether you do one-on-ones, your touch base, your team call, you know, use this language and this philosophy in your coaching? Well, it just makes me more consistent. So at first, whenever I was taking this on, I have a weekly one-on-one with all my, every, every member. We do an hour. And there for a while, I kind of wasn't very organized on what to cover during that one-on-one time. And so what's good about this now is instead of just talking about, hey, when's this deal going to close, change your close dates or get your forecast categories correct or whatever, we're able to actually use that data or the kind of status of a call based on those key, I use the word building blocks, but, you know, where are we? Are they are a lot of these things green or a lot of these things red? And it just makes it more consistent for me. So then they can see the patterns, the the types of questions and coaching that I'm giving to them. So then again, they can start to self-coach themselves as well. But it's really made my life a lot easier to where it's so hard. I mean, I've got 11 reps. I think I'm running anywhere between 80 to 100 deals at a time. And it's really hard for me to know where they all are. And so by doing that and filling that out with them, I'm able to then now go into each of the their sheets where they keep up with where a deal is on the and you know marking things red, green, or yellow. And I'm able to then forecast up to my management as well, where I think we'll fall based on all the deals. And then I also can see patterns and we look back on which ones we won or which ones we lost and were there some patterns there too. Is it like every time we lost, it's because we weren't actually talking to the economic buyer or something similar to that. Excellent. Well, let's take a quick break here and dive. Uh, when you come, when we come back, we'll go ahead and dive into some of these patterns and it's, and the scalability of this approach to the rest of the, uh, the sales teams at Bizarre Voice. And that message is this. We want to remind you that our sponsor for today's program is the Brevet Group, a B2B sales consulting firm that bridges the gap between strategy and execution. They partner with complex organizations, maybe like yours, to increase sales productivity. Their unique approach combines strategic consulting with custom training and technology-driven reinforcement to help clients reach their sales goals. That's what it's all about. If you want to reach yours, reach for your mouse and scroll over to thebrevetgroup.com. Just like it sounds, T-H-E-B-R-E-V-E-T, thebrevetgroup.com. All right, now back to uh, back to our show. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. I'm with Chris Day, a sales leader at Bizarre Voice, and we're talking about pattern matching and situational awareness with his inside sales team. And we were just finishing a conversation about Chris using data to really analyze the success of these deals and to maybe even be a little bit predictive in terms of when we're going to have success in a deal if we've covered some of the, the bases in his foundational blocks 
around each of these deal situations. Chris, I'm curious, as you've taken a look at some of these patterns, have you been able to get to that predictive level? Have you been able to identify or predict where some of these deals are going to either stall or some of these deals that actually might be successful based on some of these early indications that you're seeing in your in your situational awareness map. Yeah, the good news is our deals uh, sales cycle is pretty fast, so we're averaging about 24 days. That's right. another good thing when it comes to this pattern recognition and making these changes. I'm able to see the impact if we ask better pain finding questions and go to the second and third level deeper. If I'm able to get a rep to do better, do that better, they're able to you know close deals faster versus having like a nine-month nine, nine month sales cycle or something like that. I'm getting more and more predictable. The good news is, too, is that my reps are becoming more and more productive. So I pulled some numbers right before coming into this call, and so we've been I've been running this team for six quarters now. So I don't have a ton of data from before this, but I can tell you I've onboarded 17 reps so far. My production for the reps in the first month has improved 32% over those six quarters. The time to quota has gone from six months now to four months, so 33% faster. And the monthly production per rep has improved 137% as far as the average monthly production that we were doing when we first started this to now. It's been really, really fun and impressive to see something that, while it seems pretty simple and basic, actually have good good results whenever you take a step back and look at the data. Yeah, that's fantastic. Those are those are some stellar results, and I know a lot of folks listening on the, on the call would love to see those results. Yeah. I'm curious, as you think about the talent coming in, you got you got a young team. Have you changed the messaging at all? Have you given them additional messages to be deployed in certain situations, whether they see a certain type of buyer or they're developing a certain type of champion or they're, or they're talking to a retailer in a certain market, cosmetic versus shoes or, or something. What have you done on the messaging front to, to fine-tune this? I've actually just tried to make it simpler. Uh, the thing about my junior reps is they think that uh, if you use big words that you'll impress the person on the other end of the phone. And so <laughs> I'm from a small town. We didn't use big words, and I've found that most executives that I talk to as well don't either. So I've been having them just simplify what they talk, you know, the way that they talk and what they talk about kind of have a rule where it's like don't use anything that has three syllables <laughs> or we uh, use the term like week- weekend language as a way to talk about sure. and discuss what we do. From a messaging standpoint, we used to actually have somewhat of a script as far as the calls go. I'm getting more away from that because I found people being a little rigid and kind of being just wordy when it came to telling the story. It wasn't much of a conversation. And so I've been trying to make it just simple where it's like, hey, here are like kind of the major building blocks of a call that we need to make sure that we cover. A lot of it involves discovery questions and, you know, being curious and going at second and third levels deeper. But the messaging, though, I'm teaching them more and more how to just talk about what we do in a very simple way that is also centered on what the client wants. So, for example, instead of saying we're a software platform that collects and moderates and displays reviews on retailers, I'm teaching them to say things like, we can get more reviews than your competitors on Walmart or something like that. You know what I mean? And that just helps you be more precise, also saves a lot more time on the call to discuss other things that are maybe a little like negotiating late in the call and things. That's been a big coaching thing that I've been trying to do for a lot of my reps because you'd be surprised how unnatural it is for them to just talk talk simple. Yeah, no, that's a... That's always the trick with reps, where we're inundated with information, and it's, it's easy to be verbose and, and to be long-winded, um, yeah. and simpler and direct to the point. 
Well, there's another book that I like a lot that we use here. Um, and actually, they have some, I think they do like on-site training and things, but it's a book called Made to Stick. And what I loved about it was the main message that was, it doesn't matter what you say, it matters what they heard. And so I really am coaching the, the reps a lot. You know, a lot of times we're having a call with a lower-level person who needs to go then sell it internally to their executives and things. And so think about that the goal of this call is actually to equip and prepare that person to then go knock on the door of her boss and say, hey, uh, and whatever she's going to say after that, that's what we need to be sure that we talk about to that lower level who could be our champion. So what are they going to walk away with from this call? And so that's been a big kind of aha moment that I think has been useful for me whenever I'm coaching the, the reps on, you know, how they need to approach their messaging and their calls. Yeah, that's a good tip. Uh, for those folks that are on uh, listening in, in our audience that are leading enterprise sales teams or strategic account teams, what advice would you give those folks around this approach? Does it scale to uh, more advanced and more complex sales environments? Let's say those four things that I just wrote out. I mean, that is a uh, kind of a boiled down version of a, a lot of sales methodology, but I think almost every deal involves some sort of champion, involves mm-hmm. some sort of quantified pain involves a compelling event and a timeline, and there's always an economic buyer, and how do you navigate and work with that? Now, if you've got other things that you need to do, like is it, does it work with their technical stack, align with their other things they're doing? I mean, there's lots of different sales methodologies that you can do and add on to, and so I think this same – actually, we got a lot of these ideas from our um, enterprise guys. I just, I just kind of systemized it faster than they did. Um, they, a lot of them yeah. were doing it on their own where they were kind of doing a post-mortem of last quarter's deals and trying to spot a trend. A, a couple of the trends that they were spotting were, you know what, when I have multiple people at the company involved and or I've got their cell phone, meaning I can text them whenever, you know, they start going quiet on me. And whenever I've got those two things, the deals tend to, tend to close. When I don't, when I only have, when I'm only talking to one person, it's a, single point of failure, and so those deals typically don't close. So that, that was an example that they shared with the leadership, and I was like, oh, that's really good. How can I do that for my team? So I do believe it would work for enterprise because I think in any sales deal, there are those common building blocks that if you were to uh, be consistent with them, can really help you be uh, diagnose your deals better. Yeah, we absolutely agree, and I think to your point, some of the variables or situational factors may change. You might add some, change others, but the same principles would apply, being able to identify these factors, collect the data, look at patterns, and really to help, as, as we talked about today, self-diagnose gaps in deals, help with managers coach more effectively to these deals, better forecasting, uh, very much hold true, whether you're at a transactional sale environment or you're in a, in a complex enterprise-level opportunity. Yep, um, I agree. My final question for you, Chris, as you think about using this approach, you're six quarters in, you're having some great success, what do you do to take it to the next level? What's in your mind to continue to refine this? You guys will continue to hopefully grow and scale and you add more folks to your team, but what other things are you considering to uh, to take it to the next level? It's really going to use that um, call recording software that I was talking about earlier. We've got the ability to kind mm-hmm. of take, let's say, common objections that we hear all the time, mentions of competitors, price negotiations, all those kind of things that are common in all, all the calls, tagging them in this software, uh, putting them into, like, kind of training modules, 
and role plays and other things, but it's really taking the real scenarios that we have from our calls that are being recorded mm-hmm. and putting those into training modules that if I can speed that up, again, more advanced things like negotiating and stuff, if I can get that skill set to be them to be more seasoned on that faster, that would be a big, big step. And in all of these elements being built into the onboarding program, or are you doing sort of ad hoc enablement sessions to equip your sellers with this? these revisions or these additions? Yeah, well, I think some are more advanced than others. And so I, you don't need to go through all of them to, in order to get, you know, get on the phones, <laughs> so to speak. And so I think some of them would be kind of more advanced certifications, let's say, that um, we could build up for reps that are already enrolled. And, but certain ones, yeah, would be during onboarding, and then certain advanced ones would be kind of on-demand trainings that could be almost like advanced certifications. Excellent, excellent. So... Appreciate your commentary and your insights on this yeah. methodology approach and really using, you know, how to use situational factors and situational awareness, assessing those patterns, and trying to make better decisions as both reps and sales leaders to move these deals forward. Great insights. Appreciate your time today and taking us through that. I know our audience would get a lot of value out of the conversation today. Maybe, Chris, for their benefit, how would they get a hold of you um, or Bizarre Voice if they wanted to learn a little bit more? Maybe we've got some retailers on the phone looking for a, a rating software, um, but also to follow you directly. What's the best place for them to find you and a little bit more information about Bizarre Voice? Obviously, LinkedIn. Um, you can find me there. And then also I blog a little bit on Medium. So you can look me up, Chris Day, on Medium, and then you can reach me in either one of those places. Right. And you can check out Bizarre Voice at bizarrevoice.com and learn a little bit more about the Austin tech scene and and the great solutions they're providing there. So thank you all for joining today's podcast. To learn more about Brevet and our take on sales enablement and how it can increase your sales performance, check out thebrevetgroup.com. I've got a new blog out this week about SKO. It's SKO season, and folks are now starting to plan for SKO events in January. Get our take uh, in our latest blog about what we think reps think about SKO. Great insights from our team here. Thank you all, and we'll see you next week. You've been listening to another episode of Sales Enablement Radio, a bi-weekly program right here on the Funnel Radio channel for at-work listeners like you. Welcome back. Time to... uh, Tune in to Sales Pipeline Radio. Grab your board, catch a wave, and see if you can uh, see if you can see that blue wave or red wave uh, developing right over the horizon there. You know, I know we don't talk politics much in this show, Matt, but I do think it's important for people to know that more and more people around the country, having listened to this podcast, are starting to write your name in for everything. That is a scary, scary notion, Paul. I think that is. Um, <laughs> we, think we are we are clearly doing something wrong here. If we think that that is a good idea. Uh, yeah, we are going to avoid politics on this show. I will only say that uh, I am I am proud to live in a country where we can each vote and where we each get a say in what happens here and there you go. who our leaders are and the direction we're going to go and the decisions we make. And so, you know, if uh, if you believe strongly one way or another, I don't care. Just get out there and vote. And whatever happens, sales pipeline will be here to support you. The sales pipeline. 
pipeline is eternal. We are, <laughs> we are. Right. This is a bipartisan sales pipeline radio. So thank you everyone for joining us on the first sales pipeline radio of Q4. For those of you in their calendar fiscal year, we, Halloween is over. We're putting away the cobwebs, and we're starting from scratch. And uh, we are heading into November, heading into December. Uh, Going to finish the year strong. If you're joining us live on the Funnel Media Radio Network, thanks so much for joining us. The uh, we're we joined by live listeners at work every week and excited to have you with us. If you're joining us with the podcast, thanks so much for subscribing. We are, uh, we are. I think we're over 40,000 subscribers now on the podcast. It's been crazy, and it's been really, really exciting to watch. So thanks so much, everyone, for listening to us. And every episode of uh, Sales Pipeline Radio, Past, Present, and Future, is always available at salespipelineradio.com. Very, very excited to have our guest today. We are featuring every week some of the best and brightest minds in B2B sales and marketing. Today is no different. I don't think it's a big stretch to say this is the hardest working man in B2B sales, at least B2B sales training. Uh, he is constantly on the road trading some of the largest organizations in the country. He is the author of nine, count them, Paul, nine books, including this year's new book, Objections, The Art and Science of Getting Past No. I am uh, honored and thrilled to have with us today Jeb Blount. Jeb, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, thank you for having me on. And just, I need to say this straight out, Jeb for president. You can vote for me. I'll help you keep your pipeline full. That's fine. Jeb for president, he'll keep your pipeline full. That is literal and a metaphor. It counts for everything. I mean, think about this. I, I tell people all the time, like, life is a pipeline, right? You're looking for a spouse. You're looking for an apartment. Uh, whatever it is, like, you treat it like a pipeline. It's a better way of thinking about things. So, uh, Jeb, where where in the wide world are you calling from today? Because I'm, I'm pretty sure it's not from home. I'm not at home. I'm, I'm working on my 10th book, and I'm holed up in a cabin uh, overlooking the beautiful uh, Lake Rayburn in northwest or northeast Georgia. That's not a bad way to do it. Well, I, you know, there's so many different directions we could take this with you, um, but I want to make sure we talk about a few things that I know are near dear to your heart. You have written, like I said, nine books, uh, several bestsellers specific to sales, sales leadership, sales strategy, and I want to talk about the more recent book, Objections, because I think, um, you know, as as selling gets harder, as our prospects get busier, as it gets more difficult to get yes from prospects that, in some cases, need what you're selling but have a hard time getting out of their own way. Talk about why this book was so prescient to be your next book this year well it's, it's the one thing that everyone in sales faces is objections objections uh, maybe a better way to say there's democracy and objections if we want to continue on the the uh, the, the voting uh, process I guess conversation but uh, there's democracy there everybody faces them you, you get objections when you prospect you get objections when you ask for next steps you get objections when you ask people to buy and no one's immune so it doesn't make a difference what you sell. It doesn't make a difference if you're short cycle, long cycle, if you're enterprise, if you're less complex. It doesn't make a difference if you're an SDR or you're an AE or you have a full desk. It doesn't matter. Every single person themselves is going to face objections. So it's important that you understand how to deal with them and get past them so that you can be successful in your role. And Jeb, when I was reading this book, I mean, clearly it's a great resource for sales professionals, business development professionals, but I had a hard time thinking of anybody in a professional environment that wouldn't benefit from this methodology. You know, you're applying for a job, you're trying to get a raise, you know, you're trying to sort of navigate a variety of professional obstacles. It seems like the methodologies in this book really do apply to a wide variety of people throughout the, the enterprise. I think, and I think it goes beyond that. I think it, I think it applies to people 
from all walks of life. If you if you just if you take the first part of the book that really focuses on how do you deal with the rejection, how do you ask for things, how do you you know reduce resistance people that you're asking, how do you become rejection proof? Take anything that you do. If you're a college kid and you're walking in trying to get your professor to improve your grade, you have to be able to ask people for things and deal with uh, the the potential of an objection or rejection. If you're an entrepreneur asking for money. So I wrote the book primarily for B2B salespeople, but the surprising thing about the book is how many people are reading it that are not necessarily in sales, but they still have to ask for things and they have to get people to say yes to them. So I think that, that no matter where you are, these techniques work and they're important for you. And the back of the half of the book gets a little bit deeper into, you know, how do you deal with objections in particular in the sales process itself. Honored to have with us this week on Sales Pop Romeo, Jeb Blount. He is the author of nine books, including the new book, Objections, literally catching him. He is, uh, he's off in the hinterlands working on book number 10. Uh, and you can check out more of Jeb. If, talk about the hardest working man in, 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 uh, in sales and uh, sales training. Uh, nine books, Sales Gravy University. If you go to salesgravy.com, you can get a ton of great insights and great information from Jeb. You get his books, his articles, his videos. Uh, you can subscribe to get some of his latest training uh, via email just at salesgravy.com. And Jeb, I don't think I've actually ever asked you this question. Sales Gravy, I mean, it's a, it's a really cool brand. It's a fun brand, but wh- where did Sales Gravy come from? Well, back in 2006, when I started the company, I was struggling to find a name. And the original name for my company was Sales Professionals Online, which was kind of lame and too long. So I started looking and looking and looking. And one day, uh, my family and I, we were on Captiva Island in South Florida, And we were having Thanksgiving dinner, and the waiter came by and poured gravy on my mashed potatoes. And it was in that moment that I was like, (laughs) oh, my God, that's the perfect name because I talk about it all the time. Like, if you keep your pipeline full, you get gravy. Like, you know, things fall out of the sky that you didn't even expect. So I ran across the parking lot on Thanksgiving Day 2006. There was, I, it was out in the middle of nowhere on Captiva Island, so I had to go to the front office, the front desk, and make the lady move off the computer so I could get online and register the name because I was afraid that as I was thinking about it, someone else would get it. So that's how I got the name. I love it. It's very unique. It's very memorable, and it's uh, it's worked for you really well. Well, it, you know, the, the, of of all the topics you cover, I feel like in your content, in your videos, and if you haven't checked out Jeb's videos, you know, make sure you check out. He does a great set of videos that you can find on his website, salesgravy.com, as well as on LinkedIn. You talk a lot about prospecting, uh, and you know, one of your books, so you, you think your your book from a couple years ago called F- uh, Fanatical Prospecting. Talk about why this has been such a mantra for you, and you know what you see in the field that makes it such that we have to reinforce this topic again and again? Well, the number one reason for failure in sales is an empty pipeline. And the number one reason why people have an empty pipeline is that they're not prospecting. And if you look at businesses as a whole, so the companies that we work with, and when when they've got sales or top-line problems, 80% of it's either because they're not getting stuff into the pipe or they're not effectively advancing things through the pipe by getting micro-commitments and next steps. And prospecting is a big piece of that. Now, if we get deeper into this, if we start thinking about dealing with objections, a great deal of your ability to deal with an objection, the thing that impacts it the most is emotional control. So in every sales conversation, the person who exerts the greatest amount of emotional control typically has the highest probability of getting the outcome that they desire. 
let's just say that you're standing in front of a prospect and they give you an objection and moving to a next step or they give you a buying commitment objection. If you have an empty pipeline and you desperately need the deal, you're going to have a lot harder time getting past that objection just because you lack the emotional acuity to stand there and be assertive and confident in the face of that objection and effectively handle it. But if you have a full pipeline, if you've got tons of, uh, of deals in your pipeline, you have so much more emotional control. And this is, this is where I think we, we, we miss sometimes and don't understand the connection between prospecting and sales process. Prospecting is asking for time, and, and the sales process is asking for a series of commitments. And when you have a full pipeline, you become much better at asking for those commitments getting past objections, and effectively becoming a better negotiator, which improves your price, improves your margins, and improves your terms and conditions. Now, Jeb, as you and I both know, you know, in the in the B2B modern sales and marketing literature, the term prospecting and let alone cold calling and using the phone have sometimes become dirty words and people assume that it's kind of passe. Uh, I love watching, you know, you and Anthony and Mark and others sort of answer that question. And, and I'm really excited about what you guys have done with your conference. Can you talk a little bit about outbound, uh, if your perspective on outbound is, is related to prospecting and pipeline development, but also talk about outbound the conference and what people can look forward to uh, next year. Yeah, it's funny, you know, we talk about, you know, cold calling being bad, and I've got a sales team, and uh, and we're, my company, Sales Gravy, we're what we would you call a hyper-growth company. We're doubling in size every single year, and we're growing exponentially, um, both in terms of people and in terms of our, our revenue. And so much of it is driven by cold calling. As, as much as we drive inbound marketing, and I believe in inbound marketing, and I believe in content marketing just like you do, and the things that you talk about and teach are fundamental to driving pipe. On the flip side of that, we know that outbound prospecting combined with inbound marketing is really, really powerful. Like it's, it's just it's rocket fuel for your, for your top line. And when you talk about outbound, my, my, my team's doing cold calls right now for outbound. And yesterday we sold 50 tickets for outbound just on cold calls. We just call people up. We're interrupting in the middle of the day, and we're selling outbound tickets. And we do this every single day. And it's, it's incredible from, from military recruiting. I was uh, with the Texas National Guard last week, and uh, we had a group of recruiters in the room, and we did two 30-minute phone blocks, and, uh, and we set 199 appointments on cold calls. Outbound prospecting is powerful. And the reason that we built the Outbound Conference was because businesses are, are struggling with this. And I, I hate to use the word passe. I don't think anybody ever wanted to do outbound prospecting. It's just, it's just that we've accepted that. And so many businesses have accepted it, and so many people have accepted it. And then there's a, a whole group of people that couldn't sell their way out of a paper bag who have found a, you know, an, an avenue to talk about why they don't want to prospect on social media. And most of it's just plain noise. And smart companies, smart organizations understand that you've got to, you've got to drive pipe, you've got to drive um, your, your productivity through the, through the sales process, and you've, you've got to make sure um, that you are prospecting to, do all, you know, to, to, to pull everything through. And it's not about cold calling or not cold calling. It's about all of the above. It's about using every resource at your, at, at your disposal whether it's a, you know, a telephone prospecting call, whether it's text messaging, social media, email, um, inbound, no matter what it is, and when you use all that in combination, you win. And that's why we built the Outbound Conference. So this year at the Outbound Conference, uh, this will be our third year. We'll have 1,200 people 
uh, at the conference. Uh, we've we've already sold 300 tickets, and it's you know the end of October or the first day of November, and we've sold out our last two years. Uh, it's we call it the rock show of sales of the sales profession because it really is. We even have a fog machine, so it's awesome, and <laughs> uh, and we have. You know, this year, what's what's really I love to see is that that we're getting teams that are buying you know twenty, thirty tickets at a time. So we've um, we've sold three hundred tickets, and uh, at least I don't know half of those tickets I would say are companies who have bought tickets for their entire sales team. So they're bringing everybody in. It's a big deal. So we've expanded to uh, a three-day conference, two main stages, twenty-one speakers. And uh, and then a full day of uh, of training sessions on the third day. So it's uh, it's going to be a lot of fun this year. We're we're having a good time with it. And thank you for asking. Yeah, of course. You guys do a great job with this conference. If you want to learn more about the Outbound 2019 conference, it's in April at the Georgia World Congress Center in Atlanta. Uh, just check out outboundconference.com. We'll put that link in the show notes for this uh, web this uh, podcast episode as well. We got to take a quick break, pay a couple bills. We'll be right back. We got more questions with Jeb Blount, CEO of Gray Sales Gravy. This is Sales Pipeline Radio. Are you tired of sending sales emails and wondering if anybody? You're- ever even open them well if so you need a new service called mail tag it's a chrome browser extension for your gmail that allows you to track your emails in real time you receive alerts right away on your desktop as soon as your emails are read and as a special thank you for being a listener of this podcast we've teamed up with mail tag to provide you guys with special discount just use the promo code heinz h-e-i-n-z And you can get, you ready for this, 50% off for life. How's that for a political promise here? 50% off for life. Be sure to check out MailTag.io. And remember, it's MailTag.io to start your completely free 14-day trial. Try it first. If you like it, put in the code, get 50% off for life. No credit card required. And if you can't remember all this and write it down quick enough, the link is always in the show notes. The way we do business is advancing faster than ever before. Yet amongst the disruptions, there's one pillar that stays standing through it all. The power of a relationship. Relationships are at the core of everything. So how are today's organizations developing, nurturing, and leveraging them to drive success? Download the new research report on the state of relationship marketing and learn how your team can bridge the gaps between relationships and revenue. Download your free report at HeinzMarketing.com. That's H-E-I-N-Z Marketing.com. And remember that as you uh, listen to the second half of this interview with Matt and his guests, that a vote for these guys is a vote to make your sales pipeline great again. Just want to tell you that. So. Make sales pipeline great. That's a, I don't know what that <laughs> uh, that comes out to in terms of an acronym, but uh, you know I appreciate. Um, we have hats. We're working on hats for that too and everything. So we'll yeah, appreciate know. appreciate our sponsor of the show, Mailtag.io. You mentioned them. Love what they're doing. If you are on Gmail and want a great tool, a very simple, easy to use, and powerful tool to help manage uh, follow up with your prospects. Really, anybody you're emailing with, definitely check out Mailtag.io. Next couple of weeks, we got some great guests coming up. We got Jeffrey Gittimer next week. He is the the king of sales. Uh, I'm sure if you are in sales. 
materials. You've read some of his material. Very excited to have him on the show. Coming up in the next couple of weeks, we've also got David Premer. He's uh, the he's a, a fairly new consultant. He's been in B2B sales for a long time. He's going to talk about the topic of cerebral selling. But we have a few more minutes here today with Jeb Blount. He is the CEO of Sales Gravy, author of several sales books, including uh, this year's bestseller, Objections. And speaking of cerebral selling, Jeb, I know your book right before this one was Sales EQ, and you were talking a little bit about you know uh, controlling the the your emotions and controlling uh, sort of you know how well you manage the sale, manage the conversations. Talk a little bit about what was behind Sales EQ and the the messages there. Yeah, you know, Sales EQ was essentially the plug-in for Challenger, and you know, which which is a good methodology, but sadly has ruined several sales teams, and say several lots of sales teams, just because. It left out the emotional connection. You 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 can't use the challenger methodology if you don't have a relationship. If you if you don't understand how to control your emotions, so that you can impact the emotions and behaviors of other people. So when I st- set out the right sales EQ, it was just to answer that question, so that sales organizations could actualize some of the methodologies that were in challenger. And really, what it be- has become is. We have entire sales organizations at multinational companies that are adopting Sales EQ, which is sales-specific emotional intelligence, because they understand that sales is inherently emotional, uh, and it is emotional on the buyer side, and it's emotional on the salesperson side. And it's not just enough to tell you that you have to control and manage your emotions. You have to have frameworks and techniques and processes so that inside the sales process, as a sales professional, as a leader, as a coach, and as an organization, that you're setting yourself up to gain that emotional control and and the ability to influence and persuade other people while you're delivering insight, while you are challenging status quo, and while you're advancing your stakeholders through the sales process and while they're advancing through their buying process. Jeb, is the ability to do that, is that inherited? Is that learned? You know, how do you, if you don't really have that kind of, I guess, empathy today, uh, is that something you can learn or get better at? Yeah, well, one thing we know when we think about empathy is the data tells us that sales professionals who have a, who are lower on the empathy scale, who, have, who are more self-centric, over time have a tendency to outperform salespeople who are higher on the empathy scale. And, and now this is interesting science because it's in its good stuff. But the reason is, is not because they're better in the sales process. The reason is, is that salespeople who are lower on the empathy scale or are more likely to pick up a phone or walk in the door or interrupt someone's day and ask for time. The problem is, is that the, the, the salespeople who are lower on the empathy scale, those people who are naturally self-centric, they do really, really well in transactional sales or really short cycle sales. And they begin to fail dramatically as the complexity and the length of the sales grows. So people who are higher on the empathy scale are much better at the enterprise level than people who are lower on the empathy scale. So the question is, how do you balance that out? And, and it, it really comes down to, uh, to one, one of the key pieces is awareness. So it's helping people be, become aware of how they, they interact with the world, how they interact with people. Because if you are lower on the empathy scale, you can learn what we call dual process, which is the ability to step into your prospect's shoes and, and be empathetic and at the same time not lose sight of the outcome that you're, you're driving for that particular meeting. 
And if you're if you're higher on an empathy scale, we can teach you how to be more outcome driven so that at the end of meetings you're setting the next step and at the and, and you're able to set up appointments and do prospecting to fill up the pipeline. And this this is emotional intelligence, but it when we say cell specific, it's focused primarily on the relationship that you have between a, a, a seller and a buyer, not necessarily how emotional intelligence say applies to being a parent or being a leader. And we know that emotional intelligence is something that you can learn and something that you can grow. Now, that's not to say that there are people who should not be in the sales profession. There are. If you're a psychopath or you're super narcissistic, this may not be the right place for you. And if you are hyper empathic, in other words, if you can feel the vibration of trees and if someone says, boo, you run away, this may not be the right place for you. But most people are someplace inside that spectrum and they absolutely can learn how to uh, improve their emotional intelligence, either to be more outcome driven, so that they can they can they can or you know influence the, the the actions of other people. So when they make a request, they get the buyer to comply, or they can they can learn how to be more empathetic. In other words, listen a little better. Uh, step into their prospect shoes, understand things from their perspective, and build solutions around those things. They can learn that if they are lower on the empathy scale. And we know this to be true because most people who you know are really good in sales, they got there because they learned it through coaches and teachers and people who helped them and experience, which is one of the greatest teachers of emotional intelligence. I just don't want to wait 20 years for you to figure this out. I need to teach you quickly, which is why we have something called self EQ. Uh, and we teach people how to build and grow those, those skills and techniques and processes. Love it. Just have a few more minutes here with Jeb Blount, the CEO of Sales Gravy. So many great resources for you available for free at salesgravy.com. And I want to go back to the idea of the, the fanatical prospecting, because I actually have, I, I know a number of marketing leaders and demand gen folks that have read that book and, and see it as a great opportunity to you know improve skill set for salespeople, but also look at that and say, okay, what can we do as a marketing organization to support this behavior and activity for the sales team? What would your feedback or what would your uh, recommendation be to marketing leaders, to demand generation leaders, to you know better enable the sales team to be more successful at prospecting. I, I think that I think a great deal of it is familiarity. So th this is harder for smaller companies than it, than it is for larger companies. So if we if we if we look at familiarity from a you know a, a, the way human beings operate, we tend to engage people and companies uh, and do things that are more familiar to us than things that are less familiar to us. And this is why there's something called advertising. Advertising is a big part of marketing because the more I see a logo, the more I, I hear a message, the more likely I'm going to take a call from a salesperson who is asking me for time. So the big thing for marketers is building familiarity. Now that can be done in bulk. So you're doing, um, you know, widespread bulk marketing um, it, it, where you're, you're reaching out and you're just doing brand building so that your salespeople, the companies that you're simply calling, know who you are. And then when you get into to more enterprise-level sales where you've got really big deals on the line, it's account-based marketing that the, the, the marketing organization is focusing in on, on building familiarity and nurturing long-term relationships so that the enterprise salespeople are opening up the doors for these complex deals at exactly the right time. So they're, they're paying attention to window of opportunity. Then, then 
obviously with with so much data today and the the ability of marketing to pull information out of the marketplace in in ways that was we couldn't even imagine 20 years ago, if marketers can provide the right type of insight, especially around when buying windows open, when there are trigger events that create an opportunity, you can get that information in front of their salespeople can integrate that into the prospecting process so that as we're building better lists and as we're using some of the really cool tools that are out uh, in the marketplace today, like one of my favorites is a, a company called Outreach. And just, I love the tool. It's fantastic. Uh, if, if, I, if my marketing group can build the, the, the insights that they're getting into building better lists that we drop into a tool like Outreach that allows us to operationalize for basically fanatical prospecting, if we can do that, all of a sudden we've, we're connecting marketing and sales in a, in a way that is producing pipe. And clearly, we don't want to lose sight of content marketing and inbound marketing because an inbound lead is fantastic. Someone raises their hand and says, I want to, I want to learn more about you. That's the the very best lead we can get. And we want all of those that we get marketing can, can possibly produce. Absolutely. Well, hey, we uh, we could do this forever, but I need to let we need to get we need to get onto the next show here on the Funnel Media Network. And Jeb, we got to let you get back to the hinterlands and uh, finish book number ten. So thanks so much to our guest today, Jeb Blount. He's the CEO of Sales Gravy. Definitely check out SalesGravy.com. Uh, all of his great books and free resources. Check out OutboundConference.com. Highly recommend it if you are a sales professional. Join us next week. We got no more great guests coming up here to finish off 2018. You can check out all of episodes, including this episode on demand at salespipelineradio.com. For my great producer, Paul, this is Matt Hines. Thanks for joining us for another week of Sales Pipeline Radio. You've been listening to Sales Pipeline Radio right here on the Funnel Radio Network, brought to you by Hines Marketing. For network listeners like you. Welcome, everybody. It's time for another episode of Asher Sales Sense, brought to you by Asher Strategies. The only global sales training company that integrates leading sales methodologies and the latest neuroscience studies into a simple and repeatable 10-step process for sales success. Thank you, Paul. Paul is our announcer for Asher Sales Sense, and I'm Dave Potts in the Asher Strategy Studio in Washington, D.C. Our host today is John Asher, founder and CEO of Asher Strategies, and the title of the show is Aligning Sales and Marketing Strategy and Execution to Optimize Growth. John's guest is Brian Beveridge of Beveridge Consulting and a chair of Vistage Worldwide Executive Coaching. Topics covered during the program will include top recommendations for how to bring sales and marketing strategy and execution closer together. John, over to you. Ryan, great to have you on the show. To introduce this subject, um, I've been watching sales and marketing now for really decades, and sales and marketing uh, were not aligned 20 years ago for sure. They tried, but they weren't. When you look at the great companies today, marketing's all about getting qualified leads for salespeople and handing it over to salespeople. And when marketing really knows what they're doing, salespeople now really are starting to uh, like marketing. So, Brian, when you're working with you're working with companies to try to help them align sales and marketing. What are some of the biggest challenges that you see? John, it's interesting that you say that today more and more people are aligned and they begin, the salespeople actually speak nicely of their friends across the aisle in marketing. It has changed quite a bit over the, the last uh, five to ten years, and it's evolving still today. I still come upon organizations where the friendship are not so solid between those two functional areas. 
And one of the pieces to that that I do see is who owns the initiative. And so I'm speaking specifically about when there is work to be done between sales and marketing on whether it's leads or whether it's content or whether it's anything marketing is trying to uh, develop, create, and pass on the sales to improve productivity, efficiency, and, of course, at the end of the day, sales. And one of the biggest things I see that is really important is who owns the initiative? I get brought in a lot of times at the CEO level, and that's an awesome place to start because if it's an initiative owned by the CEO, I know that everyone's going to be accountable below him. Often, I work directly with a chief sales officer or a chief marketing officer, and sometimes I feel that doesn't always uh, serve the other person across the aisle as well as it would have been if a senior-level CEO or owner owned the initiative. So that's a big that's a big part, and I I see that as being the difference between sometimes huge success and just mediocre success. Well, I totally agree with you. And, uh, you know, my experience with sales training over 21 years, if the CEO comes to the sales training, the impact on the company is doubled. The CEO is your coach, your sponsor at the executive level. Uh, It makes makes a huge difference. So when you're actually doing this, uh, your work, um, with this whole alignment between sales and marketing, you're doing it with the larger companies. I know you work for some big ones. But then companies in the SMB, small and medium size market, what kind of difference do you see between these two? Some of the things are quite similar. Typically, both organization sizes or any size for that matter, they all want to grow their business. And in some cases, scalability is an issue. Um, you know, for the small to medium business market, I mean, unless they're being funded from outside sources potentially, they have scalability issues. And I think that uh, that affects their businesses to some degree. I think we go back to that other advantage when I said that if the CEO owns the initiative, the SMB market typically, I am working with the CEO guaranteed or the president of the business owner, and they're owning the initiative, and therefore everyone's on board and accountable. So that's an advantage for the SMB market, whereas in enterprises, I think that that can sometimes wane depending upon who's pushing the initiative and who is ultimately responsible for it. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. From the work we've also done with some of the larger companies, you see really total alignment between the head of sales, the head of marketing, and um, chief technology officer. And, of course, the reason is is there's so much technology now in in sales and marketing, that they have one person, we've seen this in a couple of countries, one person who owns all three of those, it's like, whoa, makes a huge difference. Yeah, that's a big that's a big change that is happening out there. When I started out of college, my title in a lot of my early organizations was VP Sales and Marketing. And I don't know if we're going to get back to something similar to that because that was the slave uh, kind of mentality that we had where marketing was the slave to the sales leader. But I do believe that at some point a marketing and sales leader combined would help the efficiencies of organizations as so much of the technology and the tools that are used today that are connected um, would be better served with a single leader in that position, depending on size of the organization. Yeah, no, I totally agree. So when you when you take all the work you've done over all these years as as both a sales and marketing leader and of course as a um, 
uh, I'm really a sales and marketing, uh, running the sales and marketing advisory uh, consulting practice that you, that you do. If you could have a short list of some of the top recommendations, maybe the top three or top five, what, what would those be? I unfortunately don't work with that many companies that have this beautiful trusting relationship between the sales and marketing leaders. They they put on a good show for me typically when I show up at the office. And the minute I leave, I find that they haven't even connected with one another in a month or a quarter except, except to prepare for the QBR. And so one of my uh, to-dos with most companies is to remind them that the sales and marketing leaders need to have a weekly check-in, a call, or a meeting, especially if they're in different organizational uh, geos, um, that they should get together and that they need to build that trust and relationship. And I, and as I suggest, if they're anywhere near each other, that they go to lunch together and take somebody from within the organization at the lower levels who's on the front lines talking to customers and really find out what's going on in the trenches do that and change it out and bring different people to the lunch every once in a while so they can really have their pulse on exactly what's going on out in the field. And I think that that's a, a critical component of it, of, of success. And it does vary depending upon how good that relationship is. And I think the other piece that really gets to me that I see more often than not, but it does depend on industry segment, is um, tools and technologies that are not well integrated. You know, just lowers productivity and efficiency. And I see this, you know, it's not just a sales and marketing problem. It happens across the company. So I, I ask people, are, are the tools that you all are using in sales and marketing to help productivity and efficiency, are they, are they connected together? Are they integrated enough to where you are not sweating a lot of time and effort on doing things that could be more streamlined if you had the right tools? So let me just uh, ask a quick question about that. Our company has been using Salesforce for, I guess, eight years now. I mean, just to give you the bottom line, if I told everybody in our company, the salespeople, we're getting rid of Salesforce and the marketing people, I mean, they, they would all immediately quit. So in other words, the use of Salesforce in a company where it's your kind of main database for sales and marketing, it's all integrated together. You've got Google Analytics to use. You've got market automation. It makes a huge difference. Agreed. I, I totally agree with that statement, John. I think that depending upon industry segment and the maturity of the organization with regard to how modern they are in the sales and marketing side of their business, I do see where organizations have had, as an example, Salesforce in place for six to ten years, but they have no marketing automation platform. They never even thought about it until just recently. So the integration of how they built Salesforce and how they built uh, out that particular capability now needs to be rethought because now they need to do other things with that platform in order to interact and, and integrate with the market automation platform. And although that is easy, it's a different mindset. The sales guys install the CRM. It's not, it's not quite plug and play because they've set up Salesforce in a way that makes it really difficult to track metrics with regards to marketing campaigns and pushing things back and forth between them. So there's a rebuild there that happens once in a while that uh, I still see. But I would agree with you. Uh, nobody's going to work for a company today who's performance-oriented that doesn't have a semblance of CRM, a market automation platform, and probably a content management system integrated and ready to go. Yeah, and so if you just give an example of this, I'm not a salesperson for Salesforce, but I do like it because it's really benefit, benefiting us. You know, when you if you went to San Jose and looked at the top of Salesforce's building 
oh, five years ago, it would have said sales and service. But now, since they bought Pardot, a market automation system, maybe three years ago, actually they bought Exact Target, which owned Pardot. Now at the top right. of the Salesforce building, it says sales and marketing. So if you've got Salesforce, just to add on uh, marketing from Pardot, and they're so totally integrated together, it's just like a no-brainer. John, it's time to take a quick commercial break. Over 200 correlation studies show that natural aptitude is the most significant factor in predicting sales success. Asher's Advanced Personality Questionnaire, the APQ, consistently identifies peak performers in outside sales, inside sales, sales management, customer support, and 17 other business positions. Go to asherstrategies.com today or call 866-833-9941. That's Asher Strategies at 866-833-9941. We've been speaking with Brian Beveridge of Beveridge Consulting and Vistage Worldwide Executive Coaching on how to align sales and marketing strategy and execution to optimize growth. Now back to John and Brian. So, Brian, of the um, top recommendations you've got, let me just summarize. Um, one is uh, always always have the CEO as your, you know, executive uh, coach, or the executive in charge of the project, if you can, uh, so that you can get the uh, sales and marketing uh, working together. Um, it makes a lot of sense, of course. I think the second recommendation you had is um, – Really make sure that the technology involved in both sales and marketing is is totally aligned. And so, what what other like talk recommendations do you have? Yeah, I, I see a lot of a lot of change going on uh, that sits right between uh, marketing and sales functions. And one of them certainly is sales enablement plus sales training plus communication to sales. I kind of like put the brackets around that. And, and and there's a lot of really good stuff that's going on here uh, that's usually being driven currently by the sales enablement professionals. And this is an easy place um, for someone to step in and create the, the bonding glue that doesn't typically exist between the sales and marketing function. And the sales enablement people are living that position, whether it's a part of their role and responsibility or not. But I'm seeing some tremendous work out of some of these sales enablement professionals and, um, and, and they're developing, you know, simple roadmaps, uh, sales playbooks and things like that. And they're communicating it really, really well out to the sales in the field. And I see that as a, as a huge leap in, uh, in making this less of a chasm to go over and more of a, a solid concrete bridge that, you know, passengers are going to and from, uh, all day long and during the night. So, you know, if you, um, if, if somebody asked me, what are the top tools for salespeople? I would say, uh, n- number one, you gotta have CRM and be, a, and be an expert in it. Number two, you really need to have the sales navigator level on LinkedIn and be a, you know, be a real power user of LinkedIn. And three, you gotta have a tool like Crystal Nose or Joy AI where you can go and actually Crystal Nose is now pretty much integrated into the sales navigator level on LinkedIn where you can find out the personality style of, uh, of, of the buyer before you interact with them. So those, those would be my top three recommendations for tools. What else out there in the whole sales enablement arena do you see as a, as a tool that the sales guys really need? 
I'm not so sure it's necessary that the sales guys have this, but we are starting to see um, utilization of artificial intelligence in the sales and marketing um, areas. And this is helping, uh, you know, redundant tasks that are usually being grind out through uh, BI tools of yesteryear and spreadsheets in order to predict sales and or success of marketing campaigns. And so this is a tool that now is more available than ever, and almost every single day you can find an organization that has taken AI into a specific niche in the sales and or marketing functional areas, and they're helping organizations predict faster results in advance so that they waited until a campaign had been out in the marketplace for a period of time, or they're way, they're way ahead of, of, of counting the contracts that came in at the end of the month. And I think that that's going to be an exploding market as we go forward, especially for the smaller organizations that finally can probably afford AI. And it's not so much a dark hole where you didn't have a big pocket. You probably wouldn't be stepping up and having a customized AI tool installed in your enterprise. No, that's a great insight. If you look back at the uh, industries or the technologies that have gone through exponential growth, First one was the uh, you know the transistors, the, the Moore's law. Second was the internet. Right now we've got cannabis as a ex- exploding growth. We've got nanotechnology, biotechnology, and also AI. A lot of people don't realize it, but a- AI is actually going through exploding exponential growth. I would agree with you on that, John. Any other top recommendations, uh, Brian? One of the things that it really stands out, and, and I have to, uh, I have to just circle back to this. And one of the pieces that really makes a difference, I know, in the outcomes of the work I do, is when I start seeing team accountability and mutual goals being set by the sales and marketing leaders. I see this, you know, this accountability, and then when they can break it down and they can actually talk across all their offerings, and they can talk about. Each of those groups are making a commitment to, from a revenue perspective, on let's just say net new and or existing customer growth and, and, and upsell. And they've got it to where they're both responsible for the combined goal and then they have individual goals as well. And I think that I would hope this is starting to happen. I haven't seen it yet, or at least no one's told me that. They're, they're like a marketing CMO has compensation tied to the mutual uh, success of meeting the mutual goal of revenue between sales and marketing. And when that starts happening, that's when we, you know, that's the behavior that we know that when you tie compensation to things that are important to people, you see outcomes that are, that will align with that. And I'd like to see that happen more. And I think that it's growing, uh, and, and therefore I'm sure we're going to see a lot more of that in the future. Well, I agree. I'll just give you our experience. We've worked with 2,300 companies over 20 years. And 60% of the companies we started working with, the salespeople had no quota, which is crazy when you think about it. But today, almost everybody's got a quota, so much, much better, much better alignment with the accountability, the goals, and that sort of thing. Any other top recommendations, Brian? You know, I think there's still one thing that that still bugs me when I go into a lot of firms, and I, I do an initial assessment to truly understand what's going on between marketing and sales, and I interview various people on each side of the aisle, from the chief whatever officer down a few levels and then across uh, different potential uh, divisions. And one of the pieces that still I don't believe is up to snuff yet, 
that, you know, I talked earlier that, you know, we're really in a modern sales and marketing environment today, yet many orgs are still using very antiquated budgeting methods. And I still run across organizations that do not have a real advanced budgeting methodology to help their poor marketing functions get enough budget so they can actually fulfill the needs of sales. And this is, I think it's still a problem. When I do an analysis, and when it's asked, not, not necessarily just out of the gate, but I find that most of the marketing departments, and these are, uh, for the most part, I'm talking enterprise level, they're underfunded for what they're doing today. And I think that that's an area that every organization should be looking at a little closer. Find some organizations that are similar in a different industry segment, but in a similar type of, type of offering and or marketplace and try to see what they're, they're spending on their marketing budgets because there's just a lot of lot of leftover funds that are not getting to the marketing people, I believe, when it's needed in today's world. John, it's time for the wrap-up. Bryce, it's great to talk to you. I, I love your, uh, your top five recommendations for the leaders and organizations being able to better align their sales and marketing. And, of course, the output of all of this is, is higher growth. Any other thing to add, uh, Brian? And also, uh, let the listeners know how they can contact you. That's great, John. I appreciate that. We're in a we're in a great economy. We, we nobody nobody questions that. And I think there's a big tailwind out there today. And if you're not growing in this economy, you will have limited future when the wind stops blowing. And I, I the question I'd like to ask your listeners are: You prepared for directional change? In, uh, in the economy or, uh, or a major disruptor entering your market. I think that now's the time to prepare an offensive and defensive strategy against potential threats and risks, uh, to your future. You know, as, as the saying goes, you make hay when the sun shines, not when it's raining probably. So this is a great time, I think, for people to contemplate what's the future look like if the economy slows down uh, in any way, shape, or form. How does it affect your business? What are you going to do about it? And don't think about it then, because that will be a knee-jerk reaction. I agree. It will be too late because today companies either have to have a we're going to disrupt the competition attitude or they're probably going to get disrupted. Yeah, I agree. I agree as well. And for your listeners, uh, they can find me at, at LinkedIn under my profile, Brian Beveridge. I tell people it's, uh, it's spelled like the drink, but it's ridge on the end. Or they can email me at Brian, Brian at BevConsulting.net. And, John, I want to thank you for having me on your show today. And, again, thank you, Brian, for coming. And, again, for the listeners, if you've got needs in the whole integration of sales and marketing, Brian is the man. And thank you, John and Brian. That's all the time we have for today. Our next show in two weeks will be, if you think LinkedIn doesn't matter for your business, here are five reasons you're wrong. Be sure to join us. Paul, take it away. You've been listening to Asher Sales Sense right here on the Funnel Radio Network. Susan Finch here with Rooted in Revenue on the Funnel Radio Network with my guest Amy Franco and her new book that just came out today. It's so exciting. The Modern Seller. It is nightstand worthy. It is highlighter worthy. And you need it because what she covers are for what five of our biggest disciplines it is amy let's see if i paid attention being agile entrepreneurial holistic 
an ambassador, and what am I missing? Social. That was the fifth one. Social. There we go. So missing that. Amy, welcome. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm excited to be here. We're laughing a little bit, folks, because we had an amazing show just a few minutes ago, and I didn't push the record button. So here we are, and we're going to catch you up on what we've been visiting about. Hey, life happens. <laughs> <laughs> All good. Oh, my goodness. What are, Amy, let's just dive right in. Yeah. What characteristics make a great salesperson? Well, we just covered them. The, your five points make a great salesperson, correct? Absolutely. And if um, to, to think about uh, the, the book title is The Modern Seller. And um, maybe where I could start is just with a, with a working definition of what I see as a modern seller. Um, so, so a modern seller is someone who is a recognized differentiator in their prospects or clients' business. Their client, it, they're not just a differentiator, they are recognized as such. Um, and they're also someone where the value of your product or service isn't fully recognized without you as part of the equation. You really just can't be separated from your product or service. And then lastly, that you are recognized as someone who's making your client's business better. You are their competitive advantage. And uh, that is what our prospects and clients need from us these days. We have to make that transition from um, more of a transactional nature of selling into selling where we are making a difference in their business. We're a business person for our prospects and clients. We are, and we become more immersed in their success, I think, at that point. We have that ownership to a degree that we feel responsible for their success because we are the ones they are trusting. And that, that, is, that really ties well into the ambassador piece of modern selling. Someone who's an ambassador really does take a different level of ownership, not only for themselves, but for the results that they and their clients create together. Uh, so I would completely agree with you that there, there's an ownership element to it that is, is really amplified in modern selling. There is. It's so different than how it was what, 5, 10, 20, 20. We don't even need to go back to 20 years because that's... <laughs> Tin Men, you know, style techniques. If you guys haven't seen that movie, you're babies and you haven't seen it yet, but you need to watch on how not to close deals, how not to treat your customer, how not to, how not. Danny DeVito, let's just say that and selling. No. So, but in five years, what has been the biggest change that you have seen that has changed the approach that we need to have with our prospects? Yeah, so, so I will, I'll, t I'll touch on one, and this is something that's been happening for probably longer than five years, but I would say it's just become more amplified in the last five years, and what it is is that it's accelerated ROI. So, so a really quick example of this is I was in a meeting with um, a regional, one of my prospects, a regional bank president and her chief sales officer. And we were putting the, uh, what I thought were the finer points on a, um, on a solution to roll out some sales training within their organization. And uh, in my bank president, she looked at me and she said, you know, Amy, she's like, I've got to be able to go to my CEO and I've got to be able to bullet point out three bullet points. How is this work together going to really move the needle on our business in a meaningful way in the next 90 days? Um, so, <laughs> no <yeah>. way. <laughs> Right. Yeah. So that was probably about the same look that I had on my face when she said that. And, and it taught me a couple of really valuable things. The first is I should have been expecting that question. So 
more of our prospects and clients they are thinking in this way because there's so much pressure on them to be delivering results more quickly and especially in publicly traded uh, publicly traded organizations so i should have been ready for that question and all my conversations should have been geared toward really understanding what their specific roi metrics were and then the second piece was just understanding that while as modern sellers, we're looking for building the long-term lifetime value, which can take a year or two years or longer. And it's important to pay attention to that. We also have to understand that we are not working in annual businesses anymore. We're working in quarterly businesses and we have to be really, we have to pay attention to both and be able to talk to both the short-term and the long-term. So, and sometimes we have to jar them. They can have this pie in the sky, want to see it that fast. The CEO can say that just because they feel like saying it. Sure. And, and that person under them will jump and say, yes, I can make that happen. I can do that. I can make that happen. And everything I do has to make that happen because they're afraid to go back and say, okay, I understand that's what you want, but let's talk the realistic approach to what we want to do to be sustainable, to be you know to be something that lasts and it might be up to us to step in as that go-between because that's scary for a lot of people that have to report to that level yeah and i think you're hitting on something really important which is the idea that as a modern seller we have to see ourselves and show up as peers to the c level um yes. peer, peers at every level because to your exact point not everyone has the they don't, they don't always have the positional authority or sometimes even the confidence to be able to do what you just described, which is to go to the CEO and say, hey, here are all the reasons, here are the potholes, here are the things that we need to be looking around. That can then become our role in being that advisor to our prospects, to our clients, and having those peer level conversations at the C-level. That is, and that's a new, I think that's a new role for salespeople because before, the, our contacts, our pro what we perceived as our prospects, were sort of in that gatekeeper role. Yeah, you know, I learned I learned that lesson. Um, I learned a lot of things the hard way. Um, I, <laughs> I, le I learned I learned that lesson the hard way. I, I'm thinking of a time when I was at IBM and uh, I sold the ultimate commodity. I sold uh, PCs, laptops, tablets, uh, hardware, and to your point. I was building a lot of relationships at my own peer level, which were you know, IT directors, VPs of IT, et cetera. But where I wasn't building relationships were at the board level, um, other community influencers. I sold a lot into public sector. And I lost a really big deal because of it, a multi-million dollar deal, because I thought I had all the decision makers and I had all those relationships. And what I learned was there was this whole group of other higher level influencers that I didn't take the time to become aware of and they were the ultimate decision makers in that equation and, and I lost because of it. I think that's what stymies a lot of salespeople from climbing in their careers or expanding their careers and their, their income because they do not allow themselves to be seen at that level. They, they stay stuck below and don't think, I don't know, don't think they're worthy don't think they're qualified, whatever it is, but until they change their own mindset about themselves and their skills, they will never progress. And, and to that point, one of the hallmarks of a modern seller is someone that owns their own development and their own leadership path. 
they are not afraid to invest in themselves. They're not waiting for someone to tap them on the shoulder to go to that uh, sales training program, that leadership conference, whatever it is, if, if they'll remove every obstacle that they can to make it happen for themselves. I've been going through this with a friend and she invested a you know, five-digit amount in herself for the year yeah. to go and get one-on-one -on -one training with something that's very respected in her industry. And the problem was her current boss felt threatened by that and did not want to give her the time off to go do it. Interesting. It was super interesting. So, you know, she put in her notice yesterday. Um, <laughs> go, girl. <laughs> and, but that's exactly that's what you have to do. If somebody yeah. is not going to be supportive of your growth, you are not in the right position because they will never appreciate what you're achieving. That's a really courageous move um, to... to because she's betting on herself. She is. She's betting, betting on herself, and that's a really courageous move. And, and for someone who's listening to this that might say, well, you know, she can do it, but I'm not in a position where, where I can do it. Um, the other way to look at that is to say, what can I do? Can I take um, unpaid time off? Can I take vacation time? If this is that important to me, what, how can I make it happen? Rather than looking at, well, somebody else is standing in my way of being successful. So I'm just going to sit back and let that happen. Right. I mean, aren't, aren't we worth more? Uh, for sure. And I, I had to learn that and myself because I was very used to my company making investments into me as well, sending yes. me to conferences, et cetera. And I don't think I had as much of an appreciation for that investment until I was making my own investments. And I saw as an entrepreneur and understanding the financial investment, the time investment, the energy investment, it's, um, it's eye-opening. And I have, a, I have a way different appreciation now for it. It's one of the, those hindsight things like, oh, I should have gone. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> it was on their dime and they believed in me and I got it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I have a lot. I, I, I know quite a few people when their company doesn't invest, it doesn't necessarily dawn on them to say, well, why don't I do it? Right. Why don't I do it? Why don't I write the check? Why don't I put it on my card? And why don't I go do it? Because then it's all mine anyway. And I, I get to own all the success from it. You have to own it. You have to own it at that point. Yep. That might be scary. Just as scary for people is the fact that they have to own it. Right. I mean, it goes back to the habits that we develop when we're in school. We're studying on our own, achieving on our own, pushing ourselves. We don't change a whole lot from that time. We, we really don't. Those bad habits, it takes a lot to shake them up and change them to be what they need to be now. I find that my friends that are not willing to, what, what do you refer to the status quo? You know, staying, think the sameness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That the world of sameness. Uh, on the point of habits, um, Charles Duhigg wrote a fantastic book called The Power of Habit. And what I like about it, it's an easy read. And what I like about it is um, it kind of dissects how habits are formed mm -hmm. and how if you do have a habit that you feel like you need to change, um, it, it's all in your routines. And how can you insert different routines to change a habit? So if somebody's struggling with creating the right habits, I'd, really, I'd highly recommend that book. What's the name of the book again? It's called The Power of Habit. Okay. Well, yeah, Charles Duhigg. While we're at it, who's on your nightstand right now? 
So besides Charles Duhigg, um, Jill Conrath is always on my nightstand with the sales book. Her, her very first book, Selling to Big Companies, is still one of my favorites. I think it's a timeless one. And then um, I'm also reading uh, When from Dan Pink. Um, that, that's his latest book. See, those are good influencers that you have. You know, I try to, try to surround myself with the, with the right tribe here. Hang <laughs> with the winners. <laughs> well, I noticed, too, on your site, I mean, I'm going to brag on you a little bit that Jill Conrath said some nice things about you. She said the, about your book, she said the modern seller is filled with actionable insights and practical strategies to set you apart from competitors, make you irresistible to today's buyers and ultimately drive more revenue. In short, you become the differentiator. And that's from Jill and she knows. And that's why we're here. We are here at Rooted in Revenue. And this is Susan Finch on the Funnel Radio Network with my guest today, Amy Franco, and her book, The Modern Seller. All right, Amy, let's keep going on this. We have a few more minutes left. I wish we had more time, but know, right? you know, we'll have to do another one because we already Absolutely. talked about another show coming up. So what advice, let's, let's get to what, you know, our people always like to have something to take away with them. Yeah. What advice would you give to someone struggling to stay motivated in their sales role? And this is something that we talked about. We talked about this earlier, didn't we? When we were saying that sometimes when you go into a sales role, you think you're going to have this one set of leadership and then six months, 12 months down the road, it changes. So you're all settled, you're trained, you're ready to go. And then it changes or the product changes or the product was actually a flop or people are angry or something else has changed your price points. How do you handle that? How do you stay motivated? Yeah, I think, um, I think sales is one of the toughest, like it's equally the toughest, most fun, most rewarding role in an organization. Um, and I, so I think first of all, it's the, it's just recognizing that we all hit high points and low points in our selling careers. Um, and recognizing that for what it is that if you're, if you're struggling at this point in time, that you know, it's really likely that it's a, it's a blip in the, it's a blip in the road. Looking back on your past successes, you know, validating where you've been successful in the past and just recognizing that we all have our struggle points. It's a, hopefully a blip in the road, but then also taking ownership for what you want to do to change the, change the path. Recognizing, is it, um, do I need to maybe work on my mindset? Is there a specific skill that I need to be building? And then taking the steps to work on that, whether it is with a coach or a mentor, it's, you know, it's reading, it's going to a training, whatever that might look like. But the idea is to not sit still in, in a slump. It is to actively work your way out of it because that, that motion of working your way out is what is going to get you out of it. You cannot course correct when you're standing still. No, but you and I have visited before about the small wins. Yes. Yep. And that we need to recognize the small wins because sometimes that's just a little bit of juice that keeps you going. Oh, that's so true. And I think about the, the book writing process. It was a 20-month process, 20-month uh, project. And as someone who is built for speed, I like sprints. <laughs> a, a 20 a month project is a long project and it is filled with, you know, ups and downs and celebrating the small wins is what kept me going. I got a great page in today. I finished a chapter, got a section done, you know, whatever that was, but the small wins kept me going. That's my kids will even ask me, you know, 
tell me what, you know, what went right with your day-to-day mom. What a cool question for them to ask me. What a great question. They have a good mom. <laughs> well, and keep, <laughs> because otherwise, you know, they walk in the door and it's that complaining as soon as they're dropping off their backpacks or whatever it is. We can get in that mindset of focusing on what's gone wrong or what we didn't do and yeah. just, you know, smacking ourselves about, around when the little wins begin to add up, the little wins build our advocate network, the little wins build our long-term gain as successful salespeople. Yeah. And um, that reminds me of a story. I, I read it somewhere and it was about um, Sarah Blakely, who was the founder of um, Spanx. And she would say that when she was growing up and they were sitting around the dinner table, her dad would actually ask her, you know, so, so what did you fail at today? What went wrong for you today? And the idea being that it, it is all part of the learning process is making mistakes and stumbling and getting back up. And so just by shining a light on it and learning from it, it kind of takes away that, that, uh, that fear of trying something new, of risking something different. So I kind of like that dual, you know, what went right today and maybe yeah. what, what didn't go so right that you, that you can learn from for the next time. Right. And it's being in that receptive mode to look at it as a way to change and improve rather than a way to stay down. Yeah. And I really had to learn to, and I'm a work in progress on that because I am definitely someone, if, if I make a mistake or something doesn't go right, I'm really, I have a tendency to beat myself up about it being a recovering perfectionist. So, um, so I've had to really work on that piece of it and looking at mistakes and failures as learning points that I could grow from and not as kind of this all consuming thing that you can't, you know, you can't recover from. I think of that comedian Orny Adams. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he has this one bit that he's, he's very physical comedy. He's stomping, get in the hole, just get in the hole, stay down, get in the hole. And when we are unkind to ourselves and we choose not to, you know, put that, call it a spin doctor approach, whatever you want to say, but to put that positive spin, like, okay, yeah, and how can I turn that? How can I not repeat that? How can I learn from it? And how can I share that knowledge to help others not have that problem? Exactly, exactly. And um, I think when we start to take that approach, it, um, it really changes the way that, that we show up and it helps us, to be, um, helps us to be a leader for other people too. Yep, it does. Well, I'm out of time on this abbreviated show. And I'm <laughs> I will have you back on though. Congratulations on the launch of The Modern Seller. Folks, you can go to amyfranco.com. There is a book link at the top and you can get it. She'll even give you the first chapter free and you can download that, read it to make sure that yes, do you want, the question isn't whether you want it, it's do you want the Kindle and the hardback or just one or the other? I like the way you think, Susan. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's no either, you know, yes or no, it's which one or both. So you choose. Susan, thank you. You're welcome, Amy. Thank you so much. This has been Susan Finch on the Funnel Radio Network with my show, Rooted in Revenue at rootedinrevenue.com. Go subscribe. Never miss an episode and join us back next week. Thank you so much, Amy. Thank you. You're
You're listening to the Funnel Radio Channel programs for November 1st, 2018. Tune in each week on the Funnel Radio Channel from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time.